This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I try to do around this time of year. Honestly, I'll be I try to do this all year round because I find this to be a very healthy philosophy and a very healthy approach in life and it puts you especially when you're having a bad day in a much better frame of mind. One of the things that I try to do is constantly take stock and say out loud sometimes, but certainly to myself Take stock of the things that I'm grateful for. And I have many things that I'm grateful for. Obviously, uh, first and foremost is a healthy son, healthy, beautiful, wonderful, incredible boy. Um, Two, a wife that is able to put up with me and tolerate me most of the time. And three, uh, three, obviously my parents are uh, still alive and uh, I have a great relationship with them. And you always hear stories about people who don't have their parents anymore and they're always lamenting, oh, I wish I could have spent more time with my parents and so forth. I'm very grateful the fact that I do still have my parents. Very grateful to have this job, honestly. That is the always the fourth thing that I am grateful for and to John Katzmatidis for giving me this job. I'll tell you what struck me yesterday as something that I didn't necessarily immediately appreciate having gratitude for, but I realize I am grateful for this. I am, and people are going to think I am being silly here or hyperbolic or just dumb. I am so grateful that Tucker Carlson is on television every day and has the platform of Fox News because I was not going to comment at all on uh, Vladimir Zelensky's trip to Washington, D.C., in part because it's two days before the Christmas holiday weekend, and I'm trying to be positive. I genuinely try to come on this show and be positive, and there's no way to look at what our country is doing with respect to Ukraine and Russia and be anything but critical, and I get really angry about it. And what drives me even crazier is that I so often feel like I'm the only one that feels that way. I, uh, you know, I turned on the uh, summit that he did with President Biden and I heard what Zelensky said. I heard what Biden said. I said, okay, I'm not going to talk about this today. I want to stay in a positive mood. I want to stay in a good mood for the holiday. I want to do, I want to go forward, right? So I um, did not, I wasn't planning on talking about it. And then I see on every cable network, all over the radio, doesn't matter if it's conservatives, liberals, this bipartisan consensus of people falling over themselves to praise how uh, incredible St. Zelensky is. And I still wasn't going to do it. 
And then I watched uh, some of his speech to Congress last night. I figured, all right, people may ask my opinion about this. I shouldn't be close-minded. I should at least watch his address to Congress with an open mind. And I did. Against all odds and doom and gloom scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. Now, no question this speech was well-delivered. And uh, I, who've been somewhat critical of Zelensky, I thought he did a great job with the speech. And I thought it was really uh, powerful that he gave the speech in English. English is obviously not his first language. And for him to be able to give such a stirring address in English, I thought that's really something. And I'm watching this address, and I'm thinking to myself, the guy's wearing a sweatshirt. The guy is addressing a joint session of Congress. The people that have just given him $100 billion, and he can't put on a suit and tie. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, look, don't let me be too critical of the guy. The guy's country was invaded. The guy is uh, trying to repel a Russian invasion. Maybe he doesn't have time to put on a suit and tie. And then I remember, he's got time for a Vanity Fair cover photo shoot. And then when he was a comedian... And playing a president on television, he wore a suit and tie. When he was performing on talent competitions, pretending to uh, play a, a, a xylophone with his genitalia, he was wearing a suit and tie. Why now that he's dressed, uh, that he's addressing Congress, begging for more money, can he not wear, even if not a tie, a sports jacket, a sports jacket? To me, it was just incredibly disrespectful. But I wasn't going to mention it. I said, I don't want to be the ants at the picnic. I don't want to be Debbie Downer. I don't want to be the guy that constantly brings reality to the rose-colored glasses that maybe the whole country, but seemingly all of Congress, with a few notable exceptions, um, that they seem to have when it comes to Ukraine. I don't know when Ukraine became North Dakota. I don't know when the Ukrainian fight became my fight. But I wasn't going to say anything about this sweatshirt at all because I said, look, Frank, you look like you're wearing pajamas most of the time that you're on the radio. Are you in any position to judge anyone's wardrobe? And the answer was no. So I said, and, you know, look, I'm not a judgmental guy by nature. So I said, let me stifle my commentary about his wardrobe. I'm not going to mention this at all. We're going to have a nice, fun show. We're going to bust chops. We're going to focus on frivolity. We're going to focus on holiday stuff. And I'm not going to focus on this. And then, like an oasis in the desert, Tucker Carlson comes on right after St. Zelensky, who has just banned the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, by the way, um, this champion of democracy, Um Right after St. Zelensky, Tucker Carlson comes on. And my God, I was floored. I was just floored. And I said, I can't believe he's able to get away with this. Whether you agree with what he says or not, I could have, I was tempted to just play his whole uh, first 15 minutes of his show today because he said this and everything, he said everything that I felt and everything that I believe far better than I, uh, than I could ever articulate it. But also, even if you disagree with every single word that Tucker Carlson said, I um, was I found it so refreshing that with everybody on Fox News, everybody on CNBC, everybody on MSNBC, 
everyone on CNN, everyone on News Nation, everyone on Newsmax, all these stations, liberal and conservative, at least there's one guy who's willing to tell the truth. At least there's one guy who, who's willing to challenge this bipartisan consensus that the Ukrainian fight is the American fight. At least there's one person who's willing to stand up to the military-industrial complex who is uh, getting rich in a hurry. And at least there's one person that's willing to call shenanigans when he sees it. And even if you disagree with him, I am amazed that he's able to get away with this on primetime television, on a corporate-owned media outlet. It's not like he's an independent journalist like Glenn Greenwald. This is a corporate-owned media outlet with a lot of international ties that is beholden to advertisers, that uh, does buckle under advertiser boycotts from time to time. And the fact that he has the courage to say these things was great. So from the first syllable of his first sentence, he had me hooked last night. As far as we know, no one's ever addressed the United States Congress in a sweatshirt before, but they love him much more than they love you. Welcome to Tucker Carlson's site. Remember when Sam Bankman-Fried showed up in Washington wearing a T-shirt and spouting nonsense and all the self-described geniuses declared him a hero? The media, the Congress, the White House, they all love this weird little guy called Sam Bankman-Fried. Do you remember that? Somehow we were reminded of it today when the president of Ukraine arrived at the White House dressed like the manager of a strip club and started to demand money. I was so glad that at least someone else had the courage to say what I was thinking. And I can't tell you what a relief that was. And I'll be honest with you. I did say I'm so grateful. And I said this to my wife. She happened to be in the room. And she wasn't really watching, but, you know, she was doing chores or something. And I said, I am so grateful that Tucker Carlson is on television because without an outlet for my frustrations, they would just bottle up. And Tucker gave voice to everything that I was thinking. And uh, he was excellent last night, as far as I'm concerned. And he points out um, that they're celebrating this guy who's supposedly a champion of democracy. And by the way, he talks a good game when it comes to democracy. This struggle will define in what world our children and grandchildren will live and then their children and grandchildren. It will define whether it will be a democracy of Ukrainians and for Americans for all. And he sounds great. That's, that's democracy. That's our fight. Now, it's laughable because if you look at who our government is in bed with, uh, both you know, presidents and Congress, we're not interested in democracy. You think that we have such a cozy relationship with Saudi Arabia because we love democracy? You think we have such a cozy relationship with China because we love democracy? You think we are so close with uh, Egypt because we love democracy? Of course not. American, uh, the American government has no problem ignoring autocrats and ignoring oppression anywhere in the world as long as those autocrats and as long as those bad guys are willing to be in bed with the United States. But let's pretend, let's pretend, we know this is nonsense, this love that Americans have, the American government, I should say, of democracy. It's total BS. It's, as Jay Diamond would say, uh, bullshale. It is nonsense. But let's pretend it's real. Ukraine is not a democracy. Before the war, and I brought this up with Richard Bay when he was here. I pointed out all the things 
that Zelensky was doing to stifle opposition. You know what one of the first things Zelensky did when he got elected? He had his opponent prosecuted. The guy that he just beat in the election had him prosecuted. Um, But forget about that. He had all sorts of opposition parties shut down. Since the war, it's gotten much worse. They've shut down opposition media outlets. They have now suspended the Ukrainian Orthodox Church from peacefully practicing their religion. Does that sound like the kind of thing a democracy does? There's nothing democratic about Ukraine. Now, 800-848-9222, I'll give some of you an opportunity to comment on this. And this is exactly why I didn't want to talk about this, because I knew I was just going to get out of control. I'm watching Tucker, and he had then probably my favorite journalist in America on right after he gave a brilliant opening commentary. And Glenn Greenwald, whose show I watch on Rumble, by the way, Glenn Greenwald is a left winger. I think he's a socialist, um, but he has been willing to call shenanigans wherever he sees it. He was the person that first published the Ed Snowden leaks. He does this show on Rumble that I also watched last night. And he said something which I thought was very telling, both on Rumble and I think he, I didn't hear the specific cut, but he did then ask the same question on Tucker Carlson's program. Here was Glenn Greenwald on his Rumble show. Now, whatever else you might think about whether the U.S. government should be spending so much of your money on what it calls the war in Ukraine, which mostly means pouring money into the coffers of weapons manufacturers like Raytheon and Boeing, the CIA, along with some rebuilding efforts in Ukraine— You might take some comfort, at least, in the knowledge that the Ukrainian government is deeply grateful for your sacrifices. Except they're not grateful at all. If anything, they're more bitter than grateful. Bitter that the U.S. haven't given them more of your money. Now, how much money are we talking about here? $100 billion so far. $100 billion so far. And each time Biden asks for billions and billions more, Congress says, oh, bipartisan, by the way, McConnell, Pelosi, Schumer, um, very few people willing to say no to this endless spigot of money. They give him more. They give him more than he even asked for. When I mean, this group of people in Congress that can't agree on what day it is, they have no problem giving the president even more money as long as it's for Ukraine. Now, what does it mean? When we say money's for Ukraine, where does that money go? Does it go to the Ukrainian people? No. It goes to military contractors, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin. So if you have stock in one of those companies, you're doing great. But the question that Glenn Greenwald asked, both on Tucker last night and on his own show on Rumble, how have Americans benefited in any way? Now, if you've got stock in one of those military defense contractors, you're you're doing just peachy. You're doing great. Uh, and my Uncle Caesar, before he died, he uh, said, well, whatever, I'll save my Uncle Caesar story for another day because we've got a guest coming up in a minute that I want to talk to who's going to put us in, all, in a very positive frame of mind. Um, $100 billion. $100 billion. Do you know how much money that is? Just to put that in perspective, that is almost twice the entire military budget of Russia. The entire military budget of Russia is $65 billion. So we're spending almost double that in just 10 months on this war in Ukraine that America is not even supposed to be a party to. 10 months 
we are spending $100 billion, which is almost twice the entirety of the Russian military budget. You want to know how much $100 billion is? That is twice almost what we spent in the entirety in the war in Afghanistan, which at least ostensibly had something to do with American security after September 11th. 20 years we spent about $60 billion. Well, we've done that in 10 months in Ukraine. That is $100 billion when we have all these problems in the United States and in the world. That is 17 times what it would cost to eliminate world hunger. World hunger. Not hunger in this country. You could eliminate world hunger for 17 straight years on the money that we are giving to military contractors and the CIA for this war in Ukraine. Um, Zelensky, uh, look, he, of course, did his thing. And look, he's trying to do the right thing by his people, I guess. He asked for more money. Financial assistance is also critically important. And I would like to thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for both financial packages you have already provided us with and the ones you may be willing to decide on. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. At least he said thank you, which is nice. Um, You have a situation where American politicians who indulge his requests are unwilling to do the same for the American people. You have a situation where we are hemorrhaging billions of dollars of taxpayer dollars for Ukraine while our country is in crisis. You see what's coming at the border. You have Texas, a Republican state, begging for money to deal with the influx of migrants. You have New York City, a Democratic city, begging for a billion dollars so that New York City can finance the migrants that are coming here. You have nobody really knowing where this Ukrainian money is going. There doesn't seem much to much of an effort to track any of this taxpayer money. Do you know what just happened in this supplemental spending bill that Congress just passed? There are all sorts of Americans who were declared Americans, by the way. I want to emphasize this. This is the country we actually live in. These are the people that are paying taxes for this. There are all sorts of Americans that are about to be kicked off of Medicaid because the temporary pool of people eligible for Medicaid was expanded during the pandemic. Those people are being kicked off of the government dole while we are giving another $45 billion to Ukraine. And again, I don't even like say giving money to the Ukraine, the Ukrainians, because we're not. We're giving money to military defense contractors and the CIA, and we're calling it aid for Ukraine. Now, one of the people, when this came up back in May, by the way, when this came up in May, when there were the passing they had around another $35 billion, another $40 billion, Not a single person on the anti-war left voted no. Not a single person. Bernie Sanders, who's supposed to be a big peacenik, where was he? The squad, AOC, Ilhan Omar, who've said a lot of the right things about foreign policy, not necessarily in the Middle East, but with respect to wars. They were nowhere. They all voted for this. 
Every single one of them. The only people voting no were Republicans, to their credit. And one person who really spoke for me is someone who there's a bipartisan consensus is insane and a white nationalist and a racist and crazy. And maybe she is crazy. But I'll tell you, in the 90 seconds that she was on the floor of the House explaining why we should put the brakes on this Ukrainian aid, the person that most articulated, uh, that articulated most clearly and most succinctly the way I felt about this whole situation was Republican Congresswoman from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I rise in opposition to the Ukrainian supplemental bill, $40 billion, but there's no baby formula for American mothers and babies. An unknown amount of money to the CIA in the Ukraine supplemental bill but there's no formula for American babies and mothers. $54 million in COVID spending in Ukraine, but there's no formula for American babies and mothers. $900 million for nonprofits and organizations in Ukraine, but there's no formula for American babies and mothers. billion for economic support and funding in Ukraine, but there's no formula for American mothers and babies. If this is about claiming that it's about saving lives, let's be real, then we would care about war-torn countries like Ethiopia. So that's a bunch of hypocrisy because I never hear Ethiopia brought up here. Neither do I. Totally ignoring, completely ignoring our own border crisis, our own baby formula crisis, and brutal inflation skyrocketing gas prices that no one can afford but $40 billion for Ukraine. Stop funding regime change and money laundering scams and U.S. politician cover-ups of their crimes in countries like Ukraine. The American people do not support paying for constant U.S. involvement in foreign affairs while our own government fails our own country. Let me remind everyone here, we swore an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America and our borders we should be paying attention to our country right now. I hate to I say it, but you. I agree with every word that she said there. I don't hate to say it. I mean, I enthusiastically agree with every word she said there. What's so frustrating to me is that she's one of the few members of Congress that's willing to say that. Russia's military spending is one-thirteenth of the United States's. The, their economy is smaller than Italy's. It can barely hold towns in Ukraine, yet huge members of people are saying the U.S. must stay involved. $100 billion a year, whatever it takes, $100 billion a year every year. Yeah, let's not stop at $100 billion. Let's make it a trillion. Because Putin is the new Hitler. That's what they love to do. Putin's the new Hitler. And Russia's Nazi Germany. All these neocons out there, they always have a new Hitler. For a while, Ahmadinejad was the new Hitler. For a while, Castro was the new Hitler. For a while, Muammar Gaddafi was the new Hitler. For a while, it was Saddam Hussein who was the new Hitler. Usually, what that means is a big payday for the military-industrial complex. And that's why, and this is the last thing I'll say on this, and I want to move on to B. Franklin. My first choice for president in 2024 is another brilliant person, I think, who's a combat veteran, decorated as such, still serves in the military, served in Congress, ran for president, and happened to appear on uh, Tucker Carlson's program last night 
and that is Tulsi Gabbard. It really is kind of the manifestation in front of our very eyes of a whole lot of hypocrisy because you have the Biden administration's whole foreign policy is essentially based on democracies and autocracies. We've got to divide the world between these two categories, and the U.S. is going to lead the charge for democracies to defeat the autocracies. And so they have said, hey, Ukraine is a thriving democracy, and Zelensky is this hero that is protecting this democracy, which is why Biden says we'll do everything within our power to support him. And, oh, by the way, we're going to send uh, almost uh, $100 billion of American taxpayer dollars to go and support this defense of democracy. But when you actually look at what Zelensky's democracy yeah. is, you see uh, no freedom of the press. He has shut down any media that he does not control, his government does not control. He has gotten political opposition uh, arrested, made sure that that's happened. As you mentioned, he shut down the biggest Ukraine church uh, in the country. And, and I found this quote today. He has actually threatened to punish, quote, any Christian caught worshiping in unapproved ways. Oh, so on. this is the democracy that they are saying, well, we need all of your money, our money, taxpayer dollars to go and defend. This is their shining example of democracy. It's no surprise then when we look at what's happening here at home, Tucker, and it's no surprise how we see the political and power elite so easily and willing to undermine our own democracy, undermine our own freedoms, abusing their power to achieve their own political interests because they look to Zelensky's democracy and they see a reflection and an opportunity for themselves. I still wouldn't have had as much of a problem with it if he would have just thrown on a sports jacket. But call me crazy. You're going to take $100 billion of our money. Uh, let me correct that. $100 billion of money largely which we're borrowing, mostly from the Chinese. And you can't even get yourself a sports jacket as you're passing the hat around? Come on. So um, that is... One of the key things, sincerely, that I'm grateful for, I am over the moon that Tucker Carlson still has a voice and is still seen and heard on television daily. Uh, Kudos to Tucker for uh, voicing a little bit of common sense in this cable news echo chamber. Hey, we're going to talk with uh, B. Franklin. She is the 98-year-old widow of a World War II Army photographer and the daughter of... Pep Boys founder, Jack. She's leading, I don't want to say she's led because she is very much still leading it. She has, uh, She's leading a absolutely fascinating life. And I think we all might be able to benefit from some of her wisdom. B. Franklin joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You're the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Every heart beats true under red, white, and blue, where there's never a boast or brag. But should old acquaintance be forgot, keep your eye on that grand old flag. There's a feeling comes a stealing.
Halloween and it sets my brain a reeling when I listen this to the music. This is the other side of, of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, when it comes to the holiday season, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, and the like, a lot of us uh, take stock of our family, our friends, and we think to ourselves about uh, days gone by, uh, an era in our lives and maybe in the lives of uh, the country where things were a bit better than they are now. Well, I am just over the moon thrilled to be joined by someone who has been a witness to and alive for more than a third of the United States' entire existence. Think about that. Uh, B. Franklin is the 98 years young widow of a, a World War II Army photographer and the daughter, believe it or not, of Pep Boys founder Jack. B., thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I appreciate you staying up late with us. Thank you. No problem. Now, uh, B., I think a lot of us just think of Pep Boys as a store where you can buy auto parts. They don't necessarily think of Pep Boys as uh, a place that was actually started by people, but it was, and your father was one of those people. Tell us, uh, what happened? What was the story of the origin of Pep Boys, and what role did your father play? Well, my father spoke very rarely about his association with Pep Boys. Uh, the Pep Boys were Manny, Moe, and Jack. Moe was my uncle, and Jack was my father. And uh, I believe, as I said, my dad rarely spoke about it, but I believe that Manny and Moe were in the Navy in uh, World War One, and uh, that's where they met and became friends and decided that they should do something about automobiles because it was just becoming a, a popular item. So they opened um, the Pep Boys, and I believe that they got the name from uh, the gas was named, the gasoline was named Pep, and that's how they got the Pep Boys because they did have a, a uh, I'm having a senior moment. Oh, that's okay. You're entitled at uh, at 98. Believe uh, believe me. Uh, you, you sound uh, more alert than I do at uh, whatever age I am. Um, uh, how long did uh, your dad stay associated with with Pep Boys? Do you remember? Just a few years. He left in uh, I think in 1928, and in 1929, he he had made a bargain with my uncle that he would not go in competition with Pep Boys. So we came to New York, and uh, for one year, he uh, commuted five days a week from Philadelphia to New York and opened Strauss stores. And uh, so he did very well with Strauss stores. That's great. That's great. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad uh, he he didn't it have to struggle at least financially. Your husband uh, was uh, a fascinating, uh, fascinating person who has taken some of the most iconic photos during World War II. Corporal Jerry Franklin, for three years, was a uh, U.S. Army photographer with the uh, Signal Corps. And uh, he was in Europe. He was in North Africa. He took photos of Eisenhower, FDR, many others. Tell me, uh, how did you guys meet? Well, it's a long story. Um, 
he had a best friend whose name was Oscar, and Oscar and I had a date. It was a weekend day to uh, go go into the city and go dancing, and uh, on Saturday night and Sunday we were going to go to uh, see the Giants football game, and then go for dinner, and uh, so that was uh, on a Thursday, November first. The doorbell rang, and this young man came in. He said his name was Jerry Franklin. And Oscar, had, they were best friends. And Oscar asked him if he'd like to go on a double date. So uh, my husband, Jerry, said, oh, yeah, sure. So uh, Saturday, we went into the city. I don't remember what hotel it was, but uh, they had an orchestra and dancing. And so we went in and had to... Uh, light dinner, and uh, but that was the first date was. Uh, let me see the first. I think it was uh, November fourth, but the, on November third, or November second rather, the doorbell rang and there was Jerry Franklin again, and she said, "I just happened to be passing by in the car." And I thought you might like to accompany me. I have to pick up something for my brother-in-law with whom my husband was living. So I said, oh, sure. So we went on that little date, and then he brought me home, and he said, okay, I'll see you Saturday. Saturday night, we go to the hotel, and we sit sit down, the four of us, and Jerry gets up when the music starts, and instead of asking his date to dance, he walked around the table and asked me to dance. <laughs> so I said, oh, sure, I love dancing. So we spent the whole uh, um, se- 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 segment of the uh, dancing, the music, dancing. And now we went back to the table, and uh, after they, the band took a break, the music starts again. And Jerry again says, would you like to go dancing? And but this time, I really liked him. So I said, sure. That was Saturday night. My date, Oscar, was not too happy. Oh, I can imagine. He, sure. And he gave it me a, and a sense of the florist to send me a beautiful orchid to wear Saturday night. So that really irritated him. But uh, uh, Sunday, we went to the football game. We drove to the stadium, and uh, it was really funny because Jerry was uh, was sitting on my right. I was, the three of us were in the front seat. Jerry was on my right holding my hand, and Oscar was driving with one hand with his arm around my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, after that, we had a wonderful time. Uh, but, and and did you guys get married before the war or after the war? No, I didn't even know Jerry at the beginning of the war. So uh, it was he had come home, and uh, I believe it was middle of October of 1945, and uh, uh, we. We started dating 
it was really funny how we started dating because one Monday following the weekend, he came to my home and he said, uh, I really like you, but I think I, I, I can't date you because Oscar is my best friend. So I said, well, don't I have anything to say about it? <laughs> so he said, oh, sure. So I said, well, I would like to date you, too. So I said, can I use your telephone? I showed him where the phone was, and I, he, I hear him say, Oscar, this is Jerry. I want you to know that I wanted to date B, and uh, I just wanted to let you know about it, and I hope you're not angry. And Oscar said, no, that's okay. You can date it. So that started it. We dated each other, dated one, with one another every day of November. Now, my parents had left November 1st for a month in Mexico. And when they came back on November 28th, I sat down with my parents and I said, Jerry and I are in love and we want to get married. So we would like to get married in, um, over the holidays and uh, get no, date, uh, engaged over the holidays and married in June. And my mother said, absolutely not. You haven't dated enough and so on and so forth. No, you cannot. So we walked out of the house. And as we're walking down the street, I said to Jerry, my mother is never going to approve us getting married. So let's get married. So the November 30th, we went to Jersey to someone, a lawyer that Jerry knew, and he made arrangements for us to uh, get married. And we didn't tell our folks for, until February. Wow. That, we were married. It takes a lot of gumption to do uh, in any era, but especially uh, back then. We're talking with B. Franklin. So, uh, B., how long were, were you and Jerry married before he uh, unfortunately passed away? 51 years. That's incredible. I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm working on my third year of marriage, and some days it seems very, very trying. Any advice uh, to people on how to have a marriage that lasts a, a half a century or more? Well, something, I don't know if you think that this is holding, holding a marriage together, but something Jerry told me and insisted upon was that we had to think positively about mm. everything, any situation that came up, anything about health. And uh, that's what I live, still live by, thinking positively. And I've had situations where I really had to think positively about so, um, well, I, yeah, that's such a, a great, uh, a great philosophy, and I try to do that as well. And I know I'm sure everybody's had some tough times, but you've actually been a a survivor of breast cancer, and I know a lot of our listeners have found themselves in a, a similar situation when when they're battling breast cancer or prostate cancer or anything that could potentially be life threatening. How important would you say a positive mental attitude is when you're dealing with something like that? It's very important. Very important. Breast cancer was the first cancer I had. I've had two other cancers. And positive thinking, I'm, I have 
such a strong feeling about being well because of what I of the way I live, and uh, that's the only thing I can recommend. Well, that's absolutely terrific. One of the things that I'm concerned with is not just hopefully living as as long as you've managed to live, but staying as sharp as you clearly are. There are uh, some days where I can't remember the name of a, a film or a book or uh, or you know whatever else someone in the news. And I start to wonder, well, you know, am I in danger of, uh, you know, uh, losing my marbles? What advice do you have from for people who, whether at any age, as how they can stay sharp, mentally sharp uh, later in life? There's always people that suggest things like crossword puzzles, things like uh, exercise. What do you do? What's the B. Franklin methodology at staying so razor sharp at, mentally at 98? Well, physically, I, my balance is very bad, so I now have a uh, caregiver just to make sure that I don't fall down as many times as I've fallen in my life. And uh, I have forget things also. You know, I I uh, don't remember things. I, I go to, temp, to uh, the synagogue, and people greet me, and... I don't, and I was very active in temple. I spent a lot of time going to services, and we had a gift shop, and I ran the gift shop, went shop, uh, buying uh, merchandise for the gift shop. Uh, and I don't recognize, oh, I recognize the people, but I can't come up with their names sometimes. And that's embarrassing for me. But I just, know that this is my life, this is the way it's going to be, and I accept it. And I, that's all I can say. I don't, oh, I did exercise when I could, and uh, I did, did a lot of walking, and uh, I think that's, that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And no, that- I did do crossword puzzles also. But I'm not too sharp about doing coursework puzzles anymore. <laughs> I have a feeling you're probably better at I, than I am at it these days. Um, your husband, as I mentioned, was an eyewitness to some of the most historic scenes in American history, probably in world history, with his role as a World War II photographer. How did he uh, find himself to be in such a position where he could do things like photograph FDR and Dwight Eisenhower, photographs that are still reprinted in books and history books to this day? Well, uh, before the, the war, he worked in a... Uh a business that was that wasn't photography. They were doing things for photography, developing um, movies, developing still pictures, and uh, he loved that. You know, being in that industry. So when he joined the army, and they asked, you know, what um, abilities he had, and he told them about his life. With photography, they sent him to, uh, I think that was originally in uh, Long Island City, where there was a a building that the Army had taken over, and they were training young men to how to work with 
um, cameras and whatever else it was, and taught them a little bit of German, a little bit of Italian, because that's where, you know, he was going to be. And so that's how he became the photographer. And some of the pictures are terrible to see. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You also have interacted with some of the greatest cultural icons that there are. At your home in Long Island, you've actually hosted people like the boxer Rocky Graziano. How did you find yourself crossing paths with Rocky Graziano? I don't know how Jerry Jerry met him, where, but, but they they liked each other, so Rocky became part of our destination sometimes to be with Rocky and his wife Norma, and uh, Rocky came to one of my son's bar mitzvah, and he, I had to ask him to start cursing one night when he was <laughs> in the house, and I, I threatened him. I said, Rocky, you keep talking like that, and they're going, I'm going to ask you to leave the house. So he was a real character, but he was a lot of fun. I, I can imagine. Lastly, I'll end with what a lot of people this time of year might consider the most important question. Obviously, it's still it's still Hanukkah, and a lot of people are working on uh, their various Hanukkah recipes. Maybe it's latkes, maybe it's something else. I uh, have it on good authority that uh, you are pretty world-renowned for your method of making fried matzah. Let us in on the uh, the secret here, B. Well, I used to be able to get raw chicken fat, but uh, I don't cook that much anymore, so I don't have the chickens in the house to carve out the, uh, the chicken fat. But when I could, I would render the chicken fat with onions, and then I would... But after it was, you know, liquid, I put it in jar, and that's that was what I used. I didn't use butter. I didn't use oil. I used the chicken fat. That was the basis of it. And that's how my mother made fried matzah. And then I made it just the way anybody would do. I just crack, break up the, the matzah run hot water over it to soften it, and uh, drain the water off, put the uh, chicken fat in the frying pan, and cut up some onion and put that in the frying pan, put the softened matzah in it, let it cook around a little bit on one side, flip it over on the other side, and that was it. And... Uh, I miss the chicken fat because I we have a couple of kosher butchers in the area, and I used to be able to get raw chicken fat from one of them, and then he passed away. Oh. And uh, so uh, that's the key: it's raw chicken fat, which is oh, in short oh, supply these days. Yes, yes, um, and just do you know? Just melt, put the. Uh, Raw chicken fat in a pan. Put a lighter under it. Put some onion in it with the with the raw, you know, the Got liquid. It. 
Got it. And that's it. B, uh, it is a treat talking with you. Uh, maybe we can do this again next year. That would be fun. I hope you have a great Hanukkah, and uh, I appreciate you joining me on the radio. Let's talk again. Okay, very good. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure. If you want to comment on uh, any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ignored all of its men and called on Snoopy to do it again. Was the night before Christmas, forty below, when Snoopy went up in search of his foe. He spied the Red Baron, fiercely they fought. With ice on his wings, Snoopy knew he was caught. Christmas bells, Christmas bells, ring I love this song. Absolutely love it. Uh, this is the Royal Guardsman. And uh, people may think it's silly because uh, it involves um, Snoopy. Uh, Snoopy versus the Red Baron. And uh, I get that. I get that. But um, really, it describes real events. Now, Snoopy wasn't there. But what it's talking about, if you listen to the lyrics... It's talking about the Christmas truce during World War One. I. I mean, you think about that. Uh, it says so much about humans and why, how futile and how stupid war is. And if you're not up on the Christmas truce, and some of you are probably much better versed in it than, than I am. I don't pretend to be a historian. I just am very interested in history, and I always learn a lot from history from uh, our listeners. But what the Christmas truce was, was you'd have French troops, British troops, and German troops, the uh, Germans and the British poised to kill one another. And they would take a break at Christmas from killing one another and engaging in trench warfare and they would celebrate Christmas together. Think about that. Warring soldiers, wa- soldiers from warring nations, celebrating Christmas together. They'd play soccer together. They'd have drinks together and sing Christmas carols. And if that doesn't say a lot about the futility of war and the common things that people have in common. I don't know what does. So this song, um, not only do I think it's a nice song, and I love the way it sounds, but uh, I, I, this song is very special uh, to me. I, I just absolutely love it. 800-848-9222. I'm going to get to your uh, calls in a moment. You know what we'll do? Those of you that are uh, holding, I'll get to you after the top of the hour because I don't want to. I want. I don't want you to, to rush through you. If you want to comment on anything that we have uh, commented on, you're welcome to do so. I'll tell you, in our house... 
we are living in an infirmary. <laughs> so I told you how my son was sick. My wife was sick and then developed a rash based on the medication that she was being given. Well, now my, uh, my cat, Beth Sheba, our cat, Beth Sheba, is sick. She's got an upper respiratory infection. I'll tell you. We'll see what happens. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I'll tell you what I should have asked B. Franklin, because she is the mother of uh, three sons. Wasn't she great, by the way? I uh, I am going to try and have her back next year as well. But I came across this article. This is all the way back in October, and I don't think I mentioned this at the time. I mentioned a similar study, but I don't think I mentioned this one. But B. Franklin is the mother of three sons. And I came across this study. That says having a boy as a child really is tougher. Apparently, brains age quicker in parents who have sons. Researchers studied, ready for this? More than 13,000 parents age 50 and over in the U.S., those who had at least one son experienced a quicker cognitive decline. Now, it wasn't true with B, clearly, because she's still pretty sharp. The team suggested that that's behind this study that daughters may be better at looking after parents later in life. Well, that's interesting. I'm curious if you agree with that. Do you think having a, bra- a boy is tougher on your brain? And why? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two, but these scientists came to the conclusion that having a boy, having a son, seems to age your brain quicker. So, if you have at least one son and you're over the age of fifty, you're much more likely to experience faster cognitive decline compared to those without one. And those who had more than one son. You're not going to like this if you're, again, B is proof that this is not always the case. But if you had more than one son, those are those folks that these researchers studied who had more than one son lost their cognitive abilities faster than those who only had uh, daughters. The researchers from the United States and the uh, Czech Republic, they did not investigate what was to blame for this? They just investigated and came to the conclusion that it happened. So I'm asking you, what do you think it's all about, Alfie? Why do you think parents of boys suffer greater cognitive decline than parents of girls? Is it genetic, right? Is it a situation where whatever genes lead you to have male offspring also may lead you to suffer cognitive decline? Or is it lifestyle? If so, what is the lifestyle issue? 
the suggestion from these researchers is that daughters might be more likely to look after their parents in their elderly years and offer emotional support, helping to keep them healthier as they age. Meantime, those who have boys may be less likely to lead a healthy lifestyle. For example, and this is anecdotal, this is not really hashed out in terms of data. For example, studies show that parents of daughters are less likely to drink alcohol. Parents of daughters are less likely to do drugs and smoke, while mothers of sons are more likely to weigh more. Isn't that interesting? I guess that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you're a father, right, and you're getting uh, on in your – my father and I smoke cigars together. Uh, we'll drink whiskey together. I He's not uh, drinking whiskey with my sister once in a while, maybe, but he's not smoking cigars with my sister. And maybe if you're a mom you and you have dinner regularly with your adult sons, they have a heartier appetite than the average woman generally, and they're more likely to have a heavier meal. I wonder what that role that plays. But this is a team from Charles University in Prague and Columbia University here in New York. They gathered data from this ongoing study that monitored more than 30,000 people over the age of 50 and their spouses. Some 13,222 parents who were followed around for 14 years were eligible for the study. They reported the number of children they had and their gender. And the parents also completed regular cognitive tests, which assessed their mental skills, such as memory, concentration, thinking, understanding. These included uh, things like remembering a list of 10 words, counting down from 100 in sevens, and counting backwards for 10 continuous numbers. So a total of 10,872 participants had male children, with 4,862 having one son, 3,523, excuse me, 3,523 having two, and 2,487 having three or more. Among those with no sons, 891 had one daughter, 905 had two daughters, and 554 had three or more daughters. So these results, which have been peer-reviewed and published in the Journal of Psychiatric Research, show that parents with at least one son had a faster rate of cognitive decline compared to those who had no sons. And the speed of mental deterioration was similar for both mothers and fathers. So, you know, I, I, uh, I, sorry to all the fathers of boys out there. You're in just as much of a heap of trouble as your wives are. The researchers noted the effects were modest compared to the overall decline over time. But Katrine Wolfova and the team behind the study said they were still visible, even accounting for sociodemographic and health factors that have that could have skewed the results. Their analysis also revealed that the downturn in parents' mental abilities was faster if they had multiple sons compared to parents who only had daughters. So that's bad news. As the father of a son, I'm not looking forward to that. But maybe, I don't know. Trying to come up with a silver lining there. Uh, tell me what you think the cause is. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. By the way, 
I mentioned, I don't know how I got on the subject the other day. Oh, I remember. We were talking about foods and, um, and their effect on memory. And I mentioned that when my grandmother used to watch me on Fridays and I'd watch Star Trek with her, she would make these uh, tuna croquettes every week. I'd just sit there, watch Star Trek, and eat these tuna croquettes. Well, I got, no exaggeration, at least a dozen emails. And a couple other people, I think, commented on Facebook asking about tuna croquettes, right? And uh, if there's a tuna croquette recipe or how do you make a tuna croquette? One person, I think, commented on Facebook, I've never had a tuna croquette, but now I want to try one. So uh, because so many people asked me about it, I actually went and dug up this uh, interview that I did with my grandmother about 10 years ago. And one of the things that I asked her about at the time, and I don't think I've heard this interview in some time, but one of the things that I asked her about was her methodology for making tuna croquettes. A lot of people beseeched me and they said, you have to ask your grandmother about the perfect recipe for tuna croquettes. So I know that's (laughs) a secret of yours, too, but I'm wondering if you'll... You'll let folks in on uh, what has made your tuna croquettes such a, a such such a sought after delicacy all these years. Well, I, I never make them anymore because uh, my husband don't like them, and I never make them anymore. But but you make them sort of like meatballs. You put the same ingredients that you put in a meatball. And and just like just like that, you have tuna croquettes, right? Yeah. It's incredible. Well, you don't put the bread crumb, you know. You don't put the bread in, yeah. in the tuna croquettes. It's, a, it's quite a while since I made them. Yeah, well, no, but the demand for them is as strong as ever. So there you have it. It's the same as a meatball. Instead of using ground beef or veal or whatever uh, chopped meat you use to make a meatball, you just do the same thing just with tuna. And voila, tuna croquette. I always ate them, if I remember correctly, with... Um, no sauce. Uh, no sauce. Just plain fried tuna croquette. All right. 800-848-9222. I'm curious about your reaction because so often we hear, those of us that are sons, we have heard people say that uh, having a boy is tougher. Well, if this study is to be believed, having a boy really is tougher, at least on your brain. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me begin with Bob in Bayside. Hello, Bob. Yeah, Frank. I guess uh, you know the decline in the brain with people that have uh, males uh, is is quite evident. Certainly in Curtis's case. <laughs> that's not a bad one. That's, right? that's, that's very funny. I have a Wine feeling. Blind and pocket lined Curtis over there. <laughs> I have a feeling that a lot of Curtis's cognitive decline is due to getting. Uh, hit in the head so many times. Honestly, I, I suspect it has little to do with uh, with his parentage. Well, I hope you're listening, Curtis. Uh, you could bet. Uh, not only, he gets a transcript of this show ordered every day so that he has the <laughs> a couple hours of his show um, prepared over the weekend. By the way, uh, so we are we're here all week this week. I'm going to be here tomorrow as well. And then uh, I'm off Monday, the day after Christmas. And then I'm off next Thursday and Friday, the 29th and 30th. I'm not sure who's going to be here, but um, I um, I've made some suggestions. I don't know if it's going to be Curtis or if it's going to be someone else, but uh, I have not been informed. When I'm informed, I will certainly let you know. 800-848-9222. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hey, Frank. Happy holidays to you and your family. Thank you. You too. 
Thank you. Um, I did want to talk about the interview with B, um, but you brought up uh, the subject of parents of boys as opposed to parents of girls. So I'd like to comment on that, too. Sure. Be my guest. Be my guest. Absolutely. Uh, First of all, I'm glad that you mentioned after the interview that B has three sons, because I was wondering if she and her husband had had children. She has an amazing outlook on life for someone of her age. She's very positive. So I assume she has a lot of um, support from family. At her age, she's probably lost a lot of her friends, but her attitude is so admirable. I, I loved hearing her talk. Yeah, she's I, I, completely, I completely agree with you. I believe she not only has three sons, but uh, I believe she's a grandmother as well. I, I'm not sure how many grandchildren she has, but uh, yes, yeah, she is uh, the matriarch of a, a very proud family. Lovely. And um, to have lost her husband, it sounds like they had a wonderful relationship, and that is so so difficult and she's gone on for what 20 some years without him yeah, you know that, that's what it sounded like yeah she needs to advise other widows no matter what their age because or widowers it's a horrible situation but i do hope you interview her again and um in regard to parents of boys as opposed to parents of girls i have two girls and if you can get through the teenage years of girls you're going to be okay. <laughs> I'm serious. You're uh, lucky for I believe, the money. No, I, I believe that, Mary Beth. Uh, thank you. I uh, I don't doubt it. Have a great uh, holiday season. I appreciate you calling. 800-848-9222. See, that's what I always assume, right, especially for fathers because, um, you know, you, you, you worry about your daughter. I, I mean, I don't want to say you worry more, but I think you do worry a little bit more. Right, than you do um, that you do about a son. Uh, maybe it's an antiquated gender stereotype, but you kind of feel that once your son gets to a certain age, all right, he's on his own, uh, he can manage, right? But uh, once your daughter gets to a certain age, you still, I, I don't know, I don't have any daughters, but uh, I, I'm under the impression with fathers that I know, including my own, who have daughters, you, you worry a little bit more about daughters. That's what surprised me so much about this study and uh the the i spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to figure out a potential explanation because the study is sound the data is sound i just don't understand the cause the only thing that makes sense is maybe the lifestyle aspect of things that the researchers hypothesized. But I figured, let me mention it to the listeners. Maybe they'll have an idea. 800-848-9222. Irene is in Brooklyn. Hello, Irene. Yes. Hi, Frank. Hi. I'm calling first time. Oh, uh, wonderful. Yes. Great. Welcome aboard. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I think even though I raised uh, a daughter, only one daughter, but it's my belief uh, the reason it's harder to raise a um, well, the relationship I guess is uh, more difficult. Whatever how you phrase the question is because part of a boy's maturation is to be independent. That's part of their like identity, and and part of their maturing they have to go out in the the world and as they say in English, so they're wild old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And part, yes. And that always involves risk and danger, 
you understand? I mean, it's 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 like a stick with two ends to it. You know, you like hold, hold them, but you have to let them go. And you know, and a girl, a female, is raised to be a mother, and Asha is raised by her mother. In the mother's genetic code is to keep her close, and she's the one that's going to be the. Um, mm, Hold the family together. Also, for a female, it's very important uh, to to marry and meet the right uh, guy. Is to um, uh, keep her virginity, her uh, modesty. You know, at least uh, I think it's still even in today's day and age. And that. And and that um, is uh, she's just more domesticated. Sure. Well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like your theory, Irene, is that that it's due to stress, not necessarily lifestyle, Uh, not not necessarily Mm -hmm. lifestyle. Is that right? Yes. With the boys, you worry because there's they're exposed to drugs. Sure. And getting into fights, maybe things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like they have to fight in the years. Mm-hmm. That makes yeah. sense. Irene, thank you for the call. I hope you'll, now that you've uh, popped your cherry in calling us, you'll make it a regular occurrence, okay? Okay. Thank Thanks, you. Irene. 800-848-9222. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Good morning, Frank. I'm not sure if this really just hit on it. When you're talking about lifestyle, what are you talking about? Well, the uh, I'm not talking about anything, but the authors talked about uh, drinking and smoking and drugs and weight. Oh, okay. Well, my thing is um, the worry involved when you have a a, uh, a son more than a daughter, because uh, although things are changing because of social things, right now, predominantly the dangerous jobs are held by men in the military, the police, the fire, construction. You know, you're more worried. A mother and a father are more worried every night. Is your son going to come home tonight? Is it, you know, especially if you're in the military or the police or something, maybe that has to do with the stress of just their sons providing for their family and all this stuff. Maybe that's what, you know what I'm saying? I, I just, you know, yeah. I can figure out. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Um, and that makes sense. And it's kind of similar to what Irene was saying, that it's a, that it's a stress thing, not a lifestyle thing. It's not a result of drinking more or doing drugs more or smoking more. It's a, it's a matter of stressing more about your son. Uh, makes sense to me. Again, we don't know. And I think further research is required. To me, what's interesting and frightening is that this is even a trend that we need to study now. The fact that cognitive decline is sped up for fathers of boys versus fathers of girls. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. First off, I don't know if I'm going to be able to call in tomorrow night. Oh, boy. But I want to wish you Farmline and your wife are very happy and healthy, and I hope you enjoy your uh, Christmas. Um, comparing my daughter to my son, I don't know what this researcher was smoking. My my <laughs> son is a he is absolutely it's night and day. I was telling Kenny, uh, I've earned so many gray hairs with my daughter. I mean, uh, my daughter's fifteen. I could just imagine what I'm going to be like when she's seventeen. Uh, my son. Like this Christmas, I'm going to give you an example. Um, he worked with me doing landscaping so he could save to buy me and my wife. And according to my wife, really nice Christmas gifts. And my, my daughter, it's all about a boyfriend. You know what I'm saying? She couldn't care less. And my son is very caring. So I, I do not see where 
a boy, especially these days, would be something to worry about. I mean, I don't know. I've listened to these other callers calling in about stressing. I mean, I think you'd want your son to go into the military to have like a base for our life. Well, so let, let's, uh, and I tend to agree with you, right? I don't have a daughter, but I, I'll defer to your judgment. L- let's say you're right, right? Let's say it's not a question of stress. What else? I mean, this is not like one random researcher writing an essay based on Facebook comments. This is a longitudinal study that they spent 14 years on where they looked at data, and there's clearly a correlation between uh, a sped-up cognitive decline, the more sons you have, versus people that have fewer sons or no sons at all. So if it's not stress, and I'll agree with you that it, maybe it's a more stressful thing for to be the father of a daughter, what do you think might explain this? Why would the father, or the mother for that matter, of a boy be more likely to suffer cognitive decline as opposed to the father of a daughter? Maybe it's the way I was brought up and I'm raising my children. I mean, I I raise my kids. I'm very, very old school with them. A lot of these parents today are, you know, put them on video games and, you know, occupy them with this and that and the other. Where me and my wife are, it's structured. I think it's how you raise the child. Like I told you in the past. Interesting. Like I said, like with my daughter. You know, you, wait, if you have a daughter, you're going to be freaking worried. Oh, I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Uh, Joe, thank you. Okay. Have a great Christmas, and uh, I'll talk to you next week, I hope. All right. Merry Christmas. All right. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yes, hi. Do you hear me well because my phone is acting up? Do you hear me well? Yeah, so far so good, yeah. Okay. Um, first, of all, I want to speak about positive thoughts, why they make positive things happen and make people happy. Basically, it works something like this. The subconscious mind is the, is with the, creative, is the creative mind. That's the seat of, of ideas and creativity. Now, if you believe that bad things are going to happen, let's say, let's say a puzzle or a riddle, a chess puzzle, and I've tried it myself and it really works. If you believe that you, that, oh my God, that's impossible. How could you make mate in three moves? No way. I don't care if you're Einstein. If that's what you believe, you will not come up with the answer because the subconscious mind only believes what you tell it to believe. You tell it it's impossible, it's impossible. If you say, I'm going to get it, I know I'm going to get it, you chances are if you're smart enough, you will get it. So basically, it's also like whatever the mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. So if you see positive things happening in your life, that's what your goal sort of becomes, and you ch- strive towards it. If you think about negative things, that's what materializes. That's basically explaining it in a short way. You know, uh, Charles, I, I think, I think uh, you know, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. I don't know that it explains this study, um, but um, we did a whole segment on synchronicity. And uh, I am fascinated still by synchronicity. And I, I don't chronicle all these incidents But there are so many, uh, I I want to say this, almost on a daily basis, when I say something, when I am talking with something about uh, about something with someone, I then encounter that same subject or that same item 
that same day. And I think it happens too often for it to be a coincidence. So I think one of the possible explanations could be exactly what you're describing. You know, it's been called the law of attraction. And, you know, we've done a couple of interviews on this. And I am fascinated by this endlessly, endlessly. And I, I uh, there's always some people that say, oh, well, you're just more aware. If you, um, if you have a conversation about elephants and then you see an elephant the next day, you're just more aware of it. I don't buy it, okay? It happens way too often with me. So I think there's something to that. And one of the theories, to your point, Charles, is something that they call the law of attraction, which is that when you put those thoughts out there, Those things come back. You're welcome to comment on this or anything else that we have covered. 800-848-9222. We got Brian Kilmeade coming up a little bit later. And uh, we will go live to South Jersey to talk with the mayor of Ventnor, an incredible woman in her own right, Mayor uh, Beth Holtzman, who is actually going to be our honoree at uh, New Year's Eve Eve this year. She is our, our woman of the year, Beth McCagnano Holtzman, the mayor of Ventnor. So that's coming up an hour from now. Your calls in just a moment. The six open lines, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is a, uh, a Matt Blaze selection, a fine one. Uh, Gloria Estefan, um, who I like, who's actually very good, uh, singing Bad Boys. It's a funny um, funny thing about this song. You know I'm a Star Trek fan, right? So, Bad Boy is the song uh, by Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine. So, I, when you're a Star Trek fan... You sort of become a student of everyone from the um, original series. And, of course, a big part of that is Shatner, and we've talked about Shatner endlessly. But part of that is Leonard Nimoy. And everyone who's a Star Trek fan listening, um, I think, recognizes that his first film that he ever directed was Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Great picture. Might not surprise you that the next film he directed was Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. The third film he directed, this is something that no one knows. No one knows it. I mean, you, people know it, but no one knows it. You know what the third film Leonard Nimoy directed was? Three Men and a Baby. I I am not joking. You think of Nimoy, you think drama, you think science fiction. He directed Three Men and a Baby. 
Um, it's a great film. Steve Gutenberg, Ted Danson, Tom Selleck, three of my favorites. Steve Gutenberg's been a guest on this show, and uh, he was great. And the beginning of that uh, picture, it features a montage of these three single guys all doing things that uh, single guys in their 20s or 30s do. And they initially used that song by Gloria Estefan as the opening montage music in that picture until they could figure out something else. Lo and behold, the song worked so well once they edited everything together that uh, they kept it in there. And if you watch the picture to this day, you will see that... um, that they use uh, that song in there, and it's great. It fits perfectly. It's difficult to imagine that montage with uh, any other song. So I was annoyed with myself because I uh, got a new water bottle. I finally got a new water bottle because I'm endlessly frustrated. I, I for, for you, if you're new to the show, I have this 40 ounce water bottle that I keep here in the studio, and I love this 40 ounce water bottle. Because you fill it once, maybe twice, if it's a a show with with no guests, right? You fill it once, and it's here the whole show. You don't have to run up to the water cooler and keep filling it. You fill it once. And I don't know what happened to this thing. I put it somewhere, and it's gone. It's gone. I cannot find it. So I've been using this tiny little, tiny little cup. Feel like it's a, a regular size cup that was exposed to Rick Moranis's shrink ray in tiny, in um, Honey I Shrunk the Kids. It's almost a, a shot glass for water that I'm drinking. So I have to get up after every break to um, fill this cup of water. So if you're wondering if we leave the music playing a little bit longer than usual, that's probably the reason as to why. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Larry is on Long Island. Hello, Larry. Frank, um, I want to talk about William Shatner for a second because I wasn't a Star Trek fan, but I have to tell you, I am such a fan of this man. Mm-hmm. Ye- years ago, he did a one man show. I-, I I think it started on Broadway. Sure, I've seen it. He brought- Shatner's World. Yeah. It was fantastic. He brought it to Westbury Music Fair. <clears throat> Excuse me. Around the corner from Westbury Music Fair are two restaurants. One is a steakhouse. Across the street is an Italian restaurant. The steakhouse, just by coincidence, it's Frank's Steak. You could you could hmm. check it out right now. I will. Um, myself and my date after the show were. In there having dinner, we're about half hour in, and William Shatner walks into the restaurant. Oh wow! Now he just did—he just did like almost two hours of just him on stage in in the circle. It was amazing, and he walked in. He had two associates with him, Frank, and the place went crazy. He didn't—he didn't look to be sequestered. In, in any private room, he was right next to my date and myself. And I just simply said to him, thank you for a wonderful evening. People approached him for the hour, the next hour that we were there. 
And he never, he never looked to be left alone. He was so classy after putting on a show. And this was not a young man at the time. This man was probably in his seventies. You know, a lot of people would say, I'm tired. I just leave me alone. He was fantastic. Well, I am not surprised a- to hear that, uh, Larry. I've seen that show and, you know, I've read, I think all of his books and uh, that is pretty much in keeping with <clears throat> a lot of what I've learned about him. And uh, and thanks for the call, Larry. You know, one thing about Shatner, and I don't want to make this a whole Shatner show, but Shatner does not sign autographs or take pictures. And if you see him on the street, he doesn't do that, right? You you If you stop him for an autograph or a picture, I don't think he will sign it. I don't think he will take a picture. Now, you stop John Travolta on the street, he will absolutely take a photo and sign an autograph. And I used to think that that was kind of rude, right? But I've listened to Shatner enough times to know why, right? And what happens is if he starts signing an autograph, whether he's there for five minutes or three hours, the same thing happens. There's a whole line of people that line up to get his autograph wherever he is. So um, whether he's there for five minutes or three hours, he leaves a whole line of people standing there waiting for his autograph. So um, I get it. I get it. You know, you always look like a jerk because you're always abandoning these people that are waiting for your autograph. So he signs autographs in a very controlled environment, something like a Star Trek convention or something along those lines. And um, people may say, oh, he only does that for money. Well, yeah, that's part of how he makes a living. I don't begrudge the guy for making money signing autographs. I would, too, if anybody wanted my autograph. But he also does do a lot of stuff for uh, for charity in that vein. By the way, I just have to mention the latest edition of the Racket Report has been posted The response I am getting from this podcast is extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. My guest was Anthony Ruggiano. And Anthony Ruggiano, I believe, in the 18 or so episodes of the Racket Report that we've done, he is the first cooperator. Some people might call him a rat. He's the first rat that I've interviewed. And he was great. I have to tell you, I thought he can't. I've seen him testify in court a number of times, but he came across as, uh, I thought, telling the truth for the most part. That being said, he I also tried to ask him challenging questions. And to me, the most fundamental thing when it comes to giving mobsters deals, these sweetheart deals, by the way, just uh, that pause reminded me. I was watching Sesame Street with Carmine yesterday, and I finally saw an episode with uh, The Count. He was doing a duet on uh, the number two with uh, Billie Eilish, actually, but still not enough count for me. But they had Elmo pretending to be a, uh, a superhero. They called, it the, they called him the Dark Nine, right, instead of the Dark Knight, and he was the Dark Nine. And then they have Captain Kirk, and they have basically a Shatner impersonating puppet dressed as Captain Kirk, wearing the number 10. And he does these dramatic pauses as he's talking about the number 10. It was pretty funny. But anyway, 
So Anthony Ruggiano became a cooperator, and so much of our conversation dealt with, is it right that these guys who kill people, who steal, who commit all sorts of crimes, sometimes for their whole lives, all they have to do is go to court, and they get a get-out-of-jail-free card. This is a guy, and look, I made no bones about this when I spoke to him. This is a guy who did three days in prison for murdering his own brother-in-law. And I'll just give you my opinion. I don't think that's right. So I asked him, what kind of message does that send? To me, it sends the message that all you have to do is testify against your criminal cohorts and you'll go free. And I don't think that's a good message. I want you to listen to my question, and I want you to listen to Anthony Ruggiano's response, because I thought it was really interesting. This is from the Racket Report, which you could listen to on the Red Apple Podcast Network. You can just search the Racket Report on any podcast app. Please subscribe. Please share it. Please give us a good review. And I also tweeted a link to it yesterday. You can find it on my Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Part of my interview with Anthony Ruggiano. Does it create a misincentive if we're going to give a, for lack of a better description, a get-out-of-jail-free card to people that are willing to testify against folks that they've been committing crimes with their whole life? The government knows what kind of people we are. The government knows more better than what we did better than we know what we did. They knew things about me that I forgot. I mean, you <laughs> know, and this is what they're offering people, and, and people are going to take advantage of it. You know, how do they sleep at night knowing they're putting us in the street? Right. That's I wonder the, the same thing. Uh, yeah. yeah, I wonder you know, the nobody same thing. Asks, I mean... Nobody ever asks them that, but they'll say they need us for tools to fight. Like Weinstein said, he put me, he freed me because I was a tool for the government to fight the mafia, and they need tools. That's how he word he phrased it in some kind of wording like that. Like I I became a tool for the government, which I I, I guess I was. But um, you know, how does the DOJ sleep at night? How does right. the FBI sleep at night? I thought that was right on the money. How does the FBI sleep at night? How does the DOJ sleep at night? And when he says, and I corrected them on this later in the interview, when he says no one asks them about it, yeah, I do. I ask them about it. All right, 800-848-9222. Hey, John in Brooklyn has been holding a while. Let me give him an opportunity to be heard. Hello there, John. Hello, Frank. Hey. And um, I was going to be too critical on you, but no, uh, I'm, I'm going to – let let it go because it's the uh, it's the season. Well, John, I mean, you don't have to pull your punches. I can I can take it. You know, we'll say whatever you like. Well, I said most of what I had to say was over on Dominic's program. So if you want to hear what I said, and Dominic agreed with me regarding Ukraine and Zelensky, you can hear me during the first half. I love hour. this. We now have callers um, promoting I do want to podcasts say that of their I really other enjoyed your interview with uh, B. Thank you. I found that very, very interesting. And as for the issue of, you know, I've read that study, too, and I really don't know what to make of of it because uh, – and I'll, I'll give you two quick anecdotes. My parents – I gave my parents a lot of trouble and grief growing up, and yet they both to the – my dad passed away almost six years ago next month, and um, – Sorry. He, he his memory was fully alert, and you know what was amazing about him. He 
endured everything from be, from living in the Chinese, Japanese-occupied Chinese village in northern China before coming to the United States and then uh, working various odd jobs before finally uh, finding permanent employment and then also taking time to study part-time. He actually went talking about Staten Island. He uh, almost completed a degree at the College of Staten Island. But to the end of his life, he was very, very alert. My, so, too, was my mom until COVID hit, and, and now she's suffering from dementia. Um, I, I will mention— So I guess too, you're the cause of that, John. Well, I, 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 I don't know, but um, I, I, I will mention, too, that you know it was my surprise when, I, after I had not seen him for many years, I ran into uh, Frank McCourt, who had been my favorite teacher in high school, and he had aged considerably. This was just before his first book came out. And the reason for that, I suspect, and uh, I've uh, befriended her, his daughter was giving her him a lot of grief when when uh, she was growing up. So she was probably, I think, the cause of his aging. Well, you know— But, but it, that's it, my— it could yeah, be. You know, I'm always good. hesitant. And thanks for the call, John. And uh, have a great Christmas. And I appreciate you uh, calling. I um, it's always I'm always hesitant to draw too many conclusions from one isolated example, whether it's an isolated example that proves a trend or disproves a trend. For instance, as I mentioned, B. Franklin, three sons. And uh, I'm told she has three grandchildren as well. And, you know, she's sharper than I am. Right. Um, but. You can't argue with a 14-year longitudinal study that looks at over 13,000 people. I mean, that's got to count for something. Got to count for something. All right. Uh, Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you. And then we are going to go through the mail in just a minute. If you want to uh, be heard not by phone but through the written word, you can uh, do so by emailing me at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at... WABCRadio.com, or you could find me on uh, Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. transition to hip-hop music, and I'll tell you why. I praised um, Matt Blaze here for um, his selection of that Gloria Estefan song from Three Men and a Baby, and rather than go with all the songs that I have been lobbying for for the last month, 
um, he, I, I, I think, was feeling emboldened because of my compliment of him. And now we're hearing hip-hop. So this is uh, this is Run DMC, Christmas in Hollis, Queens. This is a classic, this by is, the way. Okay, well, look, I have, this is not bad. This is, I've heard worse. Um, this is okay. Uh, I like Run DMC, the person. I met him once. You know, it's funny. We I used Reverend to, Run. Reverend Run? No, no. Um, there's DMC, DMC, and then there's Run. That's who I met, DMC. I uh, used to co-host a show on Newsmax every day at uh, noon, Liquid Lunch. Great show. And we had this great, um, st- with uh, John Tobacco. He's still on Newsmax. He's on Saturdays. And we had this great studio right here in Manhattan, and you could see it was like a, like the Today Show. You could see who's walking by and stuff. And one of the I wouldn't know Run DMC or you know DMC from anybody, right? He just looks like anybody else. I, I would recognize very few people, but one of the guys that was in the studio. So our show became so popular, not just for viewers, but for people to hang out there because we had a fully stocked bar. So people would come on, come to the show just to hang out. Be, and have drinks and watch the show. It was really quite a scene, pre, uh, right up until the pandemic, right? And then um, Manny, one of the guys that was there, a lawyer, a very prominent lawyer in Manhattan, he sees DMC walking by, and uh, he shouts him, hey! And he comes in, and he did an interview with us, spur of the moment, live on television. He just happened to be walking by. We see him. We drag him into the studio. He does an interview, and he was a super nice guy. So you know what I just did? In honor of Throwback Thursday, I just linked to that interview on um, Facebook.com slash Morano fan. He's That's a pretty fascinating guy. He is. And a nice guy. You know guy. His, his whole story. Yeah. Uh, he was adopted and yeah. he didn't know until he was older. And yeah. he talks about how you know he searched for his birth parents. And then he said, like, well, if I wasn't adopted, I would have never met um, Russell Simmons and Joe mm-hmm. Simmons and never formed Run DMC. And and then he lost his voice because he was always screaming and doing rapping. And he's a really fascinating guy. He is indeed. He is indeed. Uh, maybe we'll invite him back on the show, right? Uh, get, but if you want to see that, uh, if you want to see that scene, or if you want to see that uh, interview, I should say, I just linked to it. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. I want to get to the mail, but first, Tom from Manhattan may have a correction for us. Hello, Tom. Oh, hey, yes, uh, Frank. Love your show. But Leonard Nimoy directed uh, Three Men and a Baby, uh, not Shatner. I, yeah, I said it was Leonard Nimoy. I'm sorry. My mistake? Well, that's okay. Yeah, it's okay. I, I, uh, I get, you know, I was saying I uh, pay attention to a lot of the original cast uh, because mm-hmm. of uh, especially Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. And I said Nimoy directed Star Trek Three, Star Trek Four, and then he ultimately directed uh, Three Men and a Baby. He also directed another great film, a drama called uh, The Good Mother with Diane Keaton yes, and uh, yes, Liam Neeson. Yes, and yes. then a little bit later, he did a great comedy with, uh, with Gene Wilder. So he was actually a very prolific director. Yeah, my apologies. I didn't hear you. Oh, that's okay. That more I, 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 if you heard it incorrectly, then I'm sure there's a lot of people in the audience that <laughs> uh, that heard it wrong as well. I appreciate the opportunity to clarify that, Tom. Have a great uh, Christmas. Okay, thanks so much. Bye-bye appreciate now. Appreciate it. All right, without further ado, we are uh, a day or two late, but let's get to... Well, let's begin with 
the snail mail. I got a book here uh, and a nice note accompanying the book. It says, hey, Frank, thought you'd enjoy this book. Wes. And he includes his email address. Thank you, Wes. And it's actually a book that I do have, uh, but I could use another copy of because my copy is a little battered. It's Rambling with Gambling, the first 50 years, 1925 to 1975, by John Gambling, John A. Gambling. The John Gambling I'm friends with, and we usually talk to him before Christmas, but I don't think we're going to talk tomorrow. But we are going to play his reading of the night before Christmas. My friend is John R. Gambling, and I have this book, and there's a lot of interesting things in this book. For instance, there's a photo of for, there's this great photo of John Gambling with a very curly-haired sort of an afro, and and I don't know that anybody really knows this in the radio community, a photo of a voluptuous woman standing next to John Gambling who was John's first wife. And I don't think anybody knows that John had a wife before Wendy, but that's in this book. But I'm reading, I'm looking at this book here, and it says, To Dad, Happy Father's Day, Love Karen and Fred. So whoever was gifted this book by Karen and Fred, uh, I don't know if that was you, Wes, but it's now mine. So thank you to Karen and Fred for... uh, getting this book indirectly to me. All right, let me go through a couple of the Twitter correspondences um, and Facebook. This is from Knucklehead. Hey, Frank, huge fan from kind of an odd question here, but here goes. Me, the wife, and kids are driving from Niagara, Ontario to Punta Gorda, Florida to see my parents this week. I'm a truck driver and listening to you every night possible. Absolutely love your random stories. Is there a list online or something of what AM stations syndicate your show live so I can listen in different states, cities, etc. as I drive while the family sleeps? As streaming on my phone isn't possible, as the cost is ridiculous, I'm driving overnight to avoid the traffic. Love your racket report, too. I thoroughly enjoy the panels you have on also, all with different views. Too many uh, too many things I like to list. Haha, <laughs> great stuff. Steve, a.k.a. Knucklehead. Well... On the East Coast, since you're driving from Canada to Florida, the big station is 770 WABC, right? If you end up near Long Island, especially in Suffolk County, you're also going to want to check out 107.1 FM. Both of those stations carry our show. 770 AM, 107.1 FM, just on Long Island. And then once you get a little farther south towards the Beltway in the Maryland area, we're carried on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. Uh, those are the East Coast stations. Other than that, we're on in Tennessee, we're on in Nevada, we're on in Alaska. Uh, Raphael writes, hello, Frank. Remember the commission and why... I'm not going to respond to all these because we only have a minute left. Remember the commission and why it was created. Would they have approved the killing of a U.S. president and bring all the heat on themselves? I don't think so. Another person writes, Frank, great job on the shout-outs Sunday morning. That's a great segment. Great sharing those. Thanks. Uh, this is a person who writes on Facebook. I don't have his name. Still love your show, but judging people, people is misspelled, based on spelling and grammar... O's not smart. And then he includes a link to saying that uh, spelling and grammar judgment is uh, a, a some, something with elitism. I don't judge people based on spelling and grammar. To be clear to this gentleman, I only judge my critics on spelling and grammar. And to me, it's so interesting. The people that really like this show, they're able to form coherent sentences. And they're able to um, write well, but for some reason, the people that aren't bright enough to spell correctly or formulate sentences properly, those are always 
the people that have the harshest things to say about me. All right, uh, I, I don't have much else. Um, I, I don't have much time here, so maybe we'll resume the mail in the uh, fourth hour of the program. Otherwise, maybe we'll do some tomorrow or uh, the Tuesday after Christmas because I, we have some good mail here that I've been neglecting. So uh, I appreciate people take the time to write. The least I could do is read at least some of it. All right, next hour, we got the AC report. We got pornography and your phone calls all in one hour. Where else are you going to find a show like this? 800-848-9222. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. couple of things here. we got a lot to get to. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Um, one, I guess I went on one of my tangents, and I didn't finish my full anecdote last hour. Maureen writes on Facebook, and you can find us Facebook.com slash Fan. She writes, listening and in and enjoying, Frank, but get a damn water bottle ready. I guess I didn't finish what I was trying to say. I did purchase a water bottle. I got one. It arrived yesterday. I left it at home. So right now on uh, our counter, there are two 40-ounce water bottles, the one I use at home and the one that I purchased with the intention of using at work. So I, that's, that's what is leading to my frustration about that. All right. Um, let me be <laughs> – I'll give you one quick story. Guy Mullinari, old school – politician and sort of became an older statesman, an elder statesman. And I'm at his birthday party one year. This is, what year is it now? This is uh, 12 years ago, 12, maybe 13 years ago. And I think he had just turned 80, right? And I'm there and mostly, most of the people there was just about a dozen of us. You know, it's a quiet little after party, having a couple of drinks, maybe some cake. Uh, Vito Fasella, who's now the borough president um, of Staten Island, he was there. A bunch of other people were there. And um, we get on the subject of crossword puzzles, right? And Guy was describing, and he had he always had this younger cadre of politicos that really looked up to him. And he was describing how one week they went on, they all went on vacation together. Guy and all these younger fellows that worked with him. And... Um, Every day, a different one of these fellas got to choose their activity for the day. One day, maybe they'll do, um, I don't know, uh, the beach. Another day, they might go to a museum. Another day, they might go to a baseball game, whatever the case may be. And they're, they're all on vacation together. So when it was Guy's pick to um, determine what to do, Guy says uh, that he picked to do the New York Times crossword puzzle. And he goes on and on for literally two and a half, three minutes doing a ringing endorsement of crossword puzzles. And he's going on and on and saying, yeah, no, it's great. Everybody should do it. It's great for your vocabulary. It keeps you sharp. You learn. (laughs) And my friend Vinny, God bless him, says mostly seriously. It was said in a comedic way, but it was mostly serious. He says... Well, I don't know. Um, You give me a choice between a a hobby of crossword puzzles or internet porn, and I'm taking internet porn every time. And Guy, who's, you know, about 80 years old at the time, 
says instantly, he said, yeah, but how much Internet porn can you do? And, and Vinny, to his credit, says, you'd be surprised. I can manage quite a bit. So um, the truth is I don't look at pornography. I have looked at pornography. I, I don't remember the last time, honestly, uh, that, uh, that I've looked at it. Even though when I was dating my wife, she, I think, assumes that all men look at pornography. I never um, – and she didn't believe me when I told her that I didn't look at pornography. To me, it's uh, – I don't know. It's just not, it's not my thing, right? I'd rather, um, I'd rather not. It's not my thing. You know, unless there's a celebrity involved, that's kind of titillating, right? That's kind of uh, interesting. That, I'm trying to think of the last time I looked at real pornography, and it would have been at some point where there was a celebrity sex tape, like a Pamela Anderson or something along those lines. That was genuinely it. But I would tell you if I did. I'm honest with you about everything. So I don't look at pornography. However, I have many friends and coworkers that uh, look at pornography like crazy all the time, all the time. And um, they have described – in fact, I was just having a conversation with somebody about this the other day. He, this person was describing to me how the marriage that he is in has been helped by him looking at pornography. I'll spare you the details because it gets a little graphic and kind of gross. But this person was a big advocate of pornography. I especially um, think that pornography should be kept away from children. I think that can be – very negative uh, on children's brains and especially young men, how they view women and setting up unrealistic expectations of relationships and so on and so forth. That is um, – I think it, there's nothing wrong with trying to keep pornography out of the hands of children, right, uh, including at things like uh, public libraries. I would have no problem with filtering software that keeps pornographic websites from coming up on a library computer. That being said, if you're an adult and you want to look at pornography, it's not my thing. I think that's great. I think that is great. And you know what? Whether I think that's great or not, I don't care what you're looking at in the least. Makes no difference to me as long as you're not hurting me or anyone else. And we're talking all adults here. Once you're dealing with minors or children or anything like that, that's a whole different ballgame. Those are people that can't legally give consent. That's, that's a crime. That's a different ballgame. But if you want to look at pornography, people having sex in a, in a movie or on the Internet, whatever the case may be, God bless you. God bless you. I, um, and I've always found such a double standard in America where we get all uptight about nudity and sex and things like that. And yet we have no problem in many cases showing images all over the place of um, violence, of war, of people being killed, of people being bloodied. And uh, I would rather have people look at nudity and sex as opposed to violent imagery of people killing each other. Why are we talking about this? Well, last week. Senator Mike Lee, recently reelected Republican of Utah, has introduced something called the Interstate Obscenity Definition Act, or IOTA, which is attempting to edit the legal definition of obscenity to allow essentially for the regulation and possibly the prohibition of pornography. This bill is yet another attempt, and we've seen many 
especially over the last 50 years, by conservative lawmakers to regulate pornography. There have been other attempts that uh, aimed for less direct regulation. This bill goes right to the source, attempting to roll back the First Amendment protections that prevent state regulation of pornography in the first place. So obscenity is not protected by the First Amendment. You know why? Because the Supreme Court said so. And they have to – how do you know if something's obscene, right? Well, the Supreme Court said in that very case, we know it when we see it. You have to apply something called the Miller test, which is from 1973. So this is the current definition of pornography. So how do you know if something that you're looking at is protected by the First Amendment or it's obscenity? Tough to know sometimes. So there's a three-pronged test. One, the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work, meaning whatever image or video you're looking at, or I guess it could apply to radio as well, taken as a whole appeals to the prurient interest. Well, I mean, that's ridiculously vague. Number two, the work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way Sexual conduct specifically defined by the applicable state law. And number three, the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Now, there are problems with this Miller test because it's all subject to interpretation. Uh, Both Matt Blaze and I can watch Showgirls. He thinks there's a lot of uh, artistic and political and scientific value to it. I may not. Obscenity is one of the trickier elements of the First Amendment law, and it's kind of unclear how much contemporary pornography is protected by the First Amendment. But this legislation that Mike Lee is proposing would totally change the definition of obscenity. It creates an alternate definition of obscenity, which would open the door to almost all pornography potentially being banned. This is the new criteria uh, under IOTA, the Mike Lee legislation. Material would be deemed obscene if, one, taken as a whole, it appeals to the prurient interest in nudity, sex, or excretion. Two, it depicts, it depicts, describes, or represents actual or simulated sexual acts with the objective intent to arouse, titillate, or gratify the sexual desires of a person. By the way, do you know any pornography that doesn't exist to do that? And three, taken as a whole, lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Now, that is dangerous. If this legislation ever sees the light of day, and I hope it doesn't, but this is... One of those things where I think everyone feels it's not going to pass, so they're not talking about it. I'm talking about it because I want you to be aware of this and how dangerous this is, not only to people that make their living working in the adult film industry, but to people that enjoy watching pornography. This encompasses those three definitions that would redefine what obscenity is. This encompasses far more than just the hardest core forms of pornography. This new definition would basically render the majority of pornography in this country legally obscene. 
This change would allow for the criminalization of almost all Internet pornography by removing the requirement that sexual depictions be, quote, patently offensive. And I don't think that's right. Um, We can have our disagreements with what the Miller test is and what the Supreme Court rules, but okay, it allows people some room to maneuver. I can't stress this enough. I do not watch pornography, but I will fight to the death for your right to watch pornography. And I think this Mike Lee legislation, and I know they're very, very conservative about this kind of thing in Utah, is very much an attack on the First Amendment. If you want to watch pornography, I think you ought to be able to. And I think this Mike Lee legislation is dangerous. I would venture to say it's unconstitutional. But with the Supreme Court these days, you never know what their definition of constitutional is going to be. What do you think? Again, I don't want to get into whether you watch pornography or not. I don't care. But are you as concerned about this legislation and the infringement upon the First Amendment that comes with it as I am, 800-848-9222, that is 800-848-9222, even if this passes, because it does conflict with the prior Supreme Court ruling, it would likely face some legal challenges, uh, so we'll see where they go, but um, I don't know, I don't know, we're living in a new era, folks, right, 800-848-9222, despite Lee's intentions, If this legislation manages to pass constitutional muster, its primary effect would likely be a chilling of the First Amendment, and um, I think that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Jimmy on Staten Island. Hello, Jimmy. Hello, Frank. Bona Natale, and a very happy, healthy New Year to you and your new family. Thank you. That's number one. Thank you. Number two, when we were kids, I'm 60, when we were 14, 15, we hopped on a train, a couple of buddies of mine, and we shot up to where it used to be a corroded area that Mayor Giuliani cleared, cleaned up, uh, Times Square there. And we all had a couple of quarters, and we ran in these boots, you know. We got in there. It was disgusting. I, I didn't know which way to run, number one. And I said, you know, it's after a while to my buddies, I said, it's like golf. After the first couple of holes, you get bored of it. Right, right, right. That's uh, yeah. I would agree. That story. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. You, you learn. You learn nothing out of that. It's disgusting, especially to your mate that's sitting with you. What is she learning? Where did she come from? Not the convent. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it's uh, not high on my list of things to do on a on a date, Jimmy. But thank you. Merry Christmas. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Leo is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Leo. Uh, good morning, Frank. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I was uh, on the phone with the call screener when you was talking about the legislation, so I didn't catch what is it about. Well, then, I by all means, please comment on it. To, I just wanted to get your attention to one movie. It's with uh, Scarlett Johansson. Right. What, and, what is uh, it? The name of the movie is Don John. The whole movie is actually about a romantic comedy about a couple where he is addicted to porn and masturbating. Yeah, I've seen John. John. Yeah, I'm not. Fami- uh, thank you, Leo. I'm not familiar with that picture, but I've seen uh, a lot of um, films like that, and it's a real problem. Uh, it's a real problem. There was one film, uh, the name escapes me. Uh, I could look it up, but it's 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 not that. Me- it doesn't matter. Where uh, the the 
one of the characters is addicted to pornography, and it leads to real problems in uh, his marriage. I've seen this time and again, not only depicted in film, but in real life. I, again, I'm not pro-porn, but I'm pro the right to porn. Uh, 800-848-9222. Mike is in South Carolina. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning, Frank. Uh, that that last call, and I'm not into pornography like, like yourself, you know, ever, whatever. And, and whatever floats your boat, but don't uh, don't impede on me, you know. Uh, I'll tell you what, Frank. Um, uh, the racket report. I haven't seen the podcast, but I will. I'm going to mention something. Um, you know, I played a lot of ball back in the day. You know, summer baseball, high school, college, whatever. Uh, Seventy-two, Tony Gallo, East Rockaway. Got drafted by the Expos. We beat him. And son, Joey Gallo, you know, played for the Yankees and this and that. Uh, now I'm going to say something. Um, 1972, the second game, I believe, a third of the spring, we're playing out in Suffolk County, LaSalle Military Academy, okay? Right on the Great South Bay, east, east of Patrog. And it's cold, man. And, uh, you know, there was no uh, – we didn't have gloves. We had a pine tar rag. You blow on your hands. Um, you know, uh, our helmets, you know, what ear flap? There were no ear flaps. Long story short, this guy playing second base, got some game. You know, we beat him late in the game. And who was it? It was uh, Carlo Gambino Jr., the grandson. Oh. And, yes. So, so we hung out a little in, in 72. You know, those are interesting uh, days, you know, and whatnot. And then I'll, I'll jump to this if I could. A shout out to Joe from Rakakama. My daughter was the firstborn. <clears throat> and I told Joe, you know, if I was on Long Island, um, I would have met you guys at Deer Park just to say hello to you and, and a few others, whatever. She teaches not too far from Deer Park. And uh, what I went through, she was playing, you know, travel uh, softball. What I went through with some of her uh, uh, boyfriends. Right, but Mike, you know, I, you know, again, it sounds mildly interesting, but I, I want to get to some calls that are actually calling in on the subject that we're discussing here, which is this Mike Lee legislation to redefine uh, pornography. I don't mean to be rude, but again, I, I, it's, you know, not that interesting, I think, if you're interested in the subject that we're talking about. Silas is on Staten Island. Hello, Silas. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah. Um, I guess I'm not surprised at how much the uh, Republican Party keeps shooting itself in the foot and falling right into this. This is a total uh, thing against the First Amendment. Of course, pornography is just like free speech. Yeah, so needless to say, needless to say, uh, you're against this Mike Lee legislation. Absolutely. It's insane. People used to tell me, oh, my God, you you don't have respect for women or something if you watch pornography or something. There ain't a man on earth that has more respect for women than I do. And I've looked at pornography, so what? Well, I know a lot of women that look at pornography as well. You. you know, and I, and I think I think the, the watching of violence is worse than watching pornography. I, I completely agree. I think that's the real obscenity. Thank you, Silas. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a male-only thing. I know a lot of women that uh, that uh, enjoy watching pornography, and, you know, good for them. Good for them. I really think this legislation is a direct affront to the First Amendment, and quite frankly, it's dangerous. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi, Robert. This is interesting. This is interesting. Now, I think it would make more sense make it more useful 
to compare the Supreme Court decision, which I read a very long time ago about this, and the legislation directly, like point by point, maybe. But, I mean, that might take too much time. Well, I mean, I think I did a pretty good job summarizing the Miller test and how it would be changed under this legislation. All right. It sounds like the legislation is an attempt to codify the decision. No, it's the exact opposite of that. Again, um, Uh if you hadn't kept your radio on while you're calling the program, you might have heard what I said. Um, It is the exact opposite of that. It removes some of the key pillars of the Miller test. So um, this is completely different. This is completely different. This by um, this would empower prosecutors around the country to punish people who share pornography by creating a vague and untested new definition of criminal obscenity. So what is the new definition? So the change, um, it removes the requirement that sexual depictions be patently offensive. Okay? So you no longer, this material that you're watching, it no longer has to be patently offensive in order to be considered obscene. Two... It removes the requirement that it goes against community, contemporary community standards. So you don't have to take contemporary community standards into account. You don't have to take whether something is patently offensive into account. The, the dangerous part about this is item two in this Lee legislation depicts or describes or represents actual or simulated sex acts with the objective intent to arouse titillate, or gratify the sexual desires of a person. All pornography does that. That's why I think this potentially opens the door to criminalization of almost all Internet pornography, if not almost all, certainly far beyond what's considered obscene now. 800-848-9222. Corey is in Palm Bay. Hello, Corey. Hello, Frank. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you. You too. Um, Yes. First, I think we need to look at uh, Mr. Mike Lee's uh, search history. Uh, (laughs) And then secondly, um, this opens the door to whatever people, these people in power decide is pornographic or obscene. They're going to see... Like I, I I love I loved Pulp Fiction and earlier Tarantino movies, but I can't stand his newer ones. They're just too horrifically violent. So to me, I think that's worse than watching people having sex. I'm not a porn addict, but you know, I'd rather watch that than people you know punching women in the face and beating people with chains. Well, I would agree with you, uh, Corey, uh, but I, it doesn't matter to me what you watch, right? If As long as you're not hurting anyone, as long as that content is created with, by consenting adults and they're not hurting anyone, I don't care what you watch, right? But I um, do think that the what you would rather watch, it doesn't matter. 
is the question is, should we give prosecutors and politicians the ability to make it obscene? I don't think so. Uh, We'll give Jeffrey and Queens the last word, and then we will talk with the mayor of Ventnor, New Jersey, America's mayor, uh, Mayor Beth Macaniano Holtzman. Uh, Jeffrey's in Queens. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Frank. How are you? Okay. On your last point, um, it it flashed in my my brain that you definitely have to distinguish between voluntary porn and the stuff that's made out of exploitation, whereas it's, you know, sex trade stuff, right? And number two, tell me if you agree with this, Frank. In the 16th century, right, there was the, the crucible. They hung us at the, they burned us at the stake. Now they're 20% of the country, and they're trying to influence the rest of the country to believe as they do. Were you talking about evangelicals and the, the Christian right? right? right. Uh, you know, I, you're right. I wasn't naming it. And I, but the point, we, we can substitute any group. In this group, you, in this case, you're correct. That was what I was thinking. But we can really say if any group tries to impose their 20% belief on the other 80%, that's a problem. You know what I and thank you for the call, Jeffrey. And I am surprised at Mike Lee because Mike Lee primarily he's generally kind of libertarian, you know, and, and is a guy that generally cares about things like civil liberties. But I think what this is, it's as simple as a politician playing to the cheap seats. You know, pornography Mike Lee just came out of a, a close election, a relatively close election. It's closer than he would have liked. It's closer than most Republican incumbents have to deal with in Utah. And I think he's looking to um, shore up his right flank. And pornography is not popular with the Mormon community in Utah. And I think he is playing to the cheap seats, basically, by going after pornography. I think that's what this this is here. Um, I'm reminded of one story. I was sitting with uh, uh, two politicians. One was a state assembly member. And one was a, a, the chief of staff to a city council member at the time. This is many years ago. It's 15 years ago. And we're, we're sitting having lunch. And this guy, the chief of staff, is describing this legislation that their office is about to introduce. And he says, yeah, and we're going to do this uh, against people who are convicted of um, being child sex offenders. And my other friend, who was an assemblyman at the time, all these people are out of office now, so it doesn't matter. But my other friend says, you can't do that. That's totally unconstitutional. And then the guy who was going to propose this legislation says, who cares? Who cares? You never lose political points by going after child sex offenders. I know it's unconstitutional. You guys know it's unconstitutional. But we're going to propose it. We get a nice press release out of it. And the public sees this and says, yeah, so-and-so is tough on Child sex offenders. And that's what I think this is with Mike Lee. I suspect Mike Lee knows this is unconstitutional, but he's trying to score cheap political points. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous. Someone who always takes the high road um, when it comes to politics and community service is this year's Woman of the Year at uh, New Year's Eve Eve this year. We tried to honor her last year, but... um, Her whole household came down with COVID, so hopefully uh, it's a healthier household this year. And that is Mayor Beth McCagnano-Holtzman. She'll join us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. This is the AC Report. 
the chicken man in Philly last night And he blew up his house too Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight Gonna see what them racket boys can do Now there's trouble busting in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on the promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies, someday he comes back Put your makeup on, stitch your hair up It's no secret that I am quite fond of Atlantic City, and uh, I like the grittiness of Atlantic City, but there are a whole lot of people that don't, right? They don't like stepping out of a nice restaurant or a, a nice casino and having someone who may or may not be on drugs run over to them and beg for money. They don't like that. They don't like seeing people lined up at a needle exchange facility defecating in the street. They don't like being approached by a uh, lady of the night uh, on the boardwalk. And for those people, there is a city directly to the south of Atlantic City. And some people have, because of the difference in culture and characteristics, uh, but the proximity being right there, uh, of Atlantic City and the city directly to its south, some folks have compared it as being the difference between East and West Berlin. I am talking about a city that also has a boardwalk, a city which also has an incredibly rich history, and a city who, uh, for the last 120 years or so, has had, to some extent, its fate inexorably tied to Atlantic City. And I am just thrilled to welcome uh, with all apologies to my friend, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, the person I contend is America's mayor, the mayor of Ventnor, New Jersey, Beth Macaniano Holtzman. Madam Mayor, thanks so much for staying up late with us or getting up early. Oh, my pleasure. And I, I loved what you said ahead ahead of uh, me coming on. You're right. Um, by title, I'm, I'm a politician, but as a person, I'm not. So I guess that's why I beat to my own drum. And um, I, I love Atlantic City because just to give you a little history, I was born and raised in Atlantic City. So were my parents who are still with us. Dad will so, soon be 89. Mom is 82. And they grew up in the Italian section called Bucktown. So I uh, was born and raised there until I was 10. And then my parents, we moved to Vetner. So I've been in Vetner since for 50 years because I'm now 60. And um, but I always look at Atlantic City as part of me. Um, I love it too. When I I worked in the city until April when I retired because I worked for the the county, and our office was located uh, right in the center of the city. So um, I do. I I love. I actually I do have to say that I loved Atlantic City growing up. Um, The casino has brought a whole different spin, but. you know, positive and negative, as anything is. Everything is a double-edged sword, I think. But uh, And I worked at the casinos when I was younger, um, managing restaurants. So, But I have a love for Atlantic City because I was uh, I was raised there until I was 10. You know, I have great memories there. 
Overall, um, would you say that if you had to pick, on balance, the the legalization of casino gambling in 1970s, there was a lot of big promises about what would come, economic activity, uh, some tax relief, jobs. Overall, would you say the legalization of casino gambling has been a net positive for the city and its residents or a net negative? I would have to say, you know, I'm like old school, so I would almost – I ha- Positive in ways, you know, economic development is always positive, but the negative is I, I, they tore down the most magnificent, magnificent hotels, hotels where my grandfather was a, a plaster worker and the work that he did in those hotels. They were just beautiful. They, the, the buildings themselves were pieces of art. They were all torn down. And... Um, I, like I said, I think Atlantic City brought jobs. It brought, um, you know, the economic development, the revenue, but um, it also brought a lot of negative. It did. I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember as a kid working on the boardwalk. Of course, my dad always had us. There was four girls in my family. We always had to work for someone that my dad knew. His dad, you know, Sicilian. <laughs> so we didn't work for, yeah, we didn't work for somebody that uh, just a stranger. So, uh, and I remember growing up and working on the boardwalk and at 14, 15, trying, you know, walking the boards at 11, 12 o'clock midnight and walking down to see one of my cousins that worked at the core brothers. You know, uh, would I work, walk on the boardwalk right now at midnight? No. I, I betting you would walk on the boardwalk of Ventnor City, though. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, there's, you know, no town is, you know totally safe anymore uh, unfortunately you know i think a lot of a lot of the world has turned upside down <laughs> just be, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of events, a lot of areas a lot of aspects have become unglued um and i think a lot of that is because of um, the way other generations after me you're a lot younger than i but um you know i was raised you know typical italian household and, uh, you know, raised to, you know, basically honor, loyalty, respect, and um, and your word. You know, your word, my dad, you know, drilled it into us. You know, your word is who you are. It's your character. It's your integrity. So, um, you know, I give my word. I, I, I never go back on it. Never. I mean, I gave my word to a family before I got in office. And um, I held to it. And... Almost, you know, I was I was actually like an island on my own uh, or alone on an island. I had uh, no support from the rest of the commission on a, on a uh, subject, but I fought and I fought hard. And the outcome is just beautiful. So um, I think, you know, newer gen, I think my my son's 18. And honestly, I look at him and the way he is. That generation's different. Um, I would tell people, you know, with different movements that have happened in the world, you know, probably know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, it's funny because I'll say to people that um, family and friends, I said, you know, everyone will be equal when we stop using adjectives to describe people. And, you know, my generation, you know, they describe people, if they meet someone. You know, my son's generation does not do that. I mean, his 
circle of friends when they're here. It looks like I have the United Nations conference <laughs> going on. It's the truth. It really is. It's so funny. It's friends, you know, Egyptian, you know, Puerto Rican, Dominican. Uh, it, it's just, you know, it's of course, you know, Italian, whatever, but they don't describe people. You know, if he says a friend's coming over, he doesn't use a descriptive adjective to tell me who this young man is. Um, so I really believe that that's when we will all be equal and we will all. Um, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great uh, attitude and a a great philosophy. We're uh, talking with uh, Mayor Beth McCagnano Holtzman, the uh, mayor of Ventnor, New Jersey, our uh, Woman of the Year this year. Who, if you come to their party in New Year's Eve, you will get to meet firsthand. I'm curious, Beth. You know, Atlantic City, even when it was at its worst in terms of people not going there, it was always busy during the summer, the couple of weeks before summer, the couple of weeks after summer, and that usually means that uh, a lot of people might be looking to rent houses and stay in places like Ventnor. Things get a little slower generally, historically, in Atlantic City in the winter. What do the winter months uh, mean for communities like Ventnor and Margate? Do they become a a ghost town, or do you still have a lot of tourists that are trying to stay there? Not a ghost town. Um, Vetner and uh, my team actually uh, was called uh, Imagine Vetner. And when we campaigned that whole Imagine Vetner, and it was like dot, 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 we would ask people, what do you imagine Vetner to be? I, I decided, I thought about running for almost 10 years, but uh, at 42, I had a child. So that, you know, life, life puts things on, you know, on hold. So we, my whole team, Commissioner Landgraf, Commissioner Creeble, myself, we all were on the same board. We had the same goals, the same mission to um, make Ventnor the best it could be, not only for the, the year-round community, but for people to want to come here to change it. And by 15, 2015, I decided it was time because I saw, I guess, my second hometown turning into something that was not pretty. Uh, you know, there were you know, so many storefronts closed. You know, the housing market was, was horrible. Superstorm Sandy just crushed the um, the housing market here. And um, a lot of families moved away because uh, they just couldn't, they just couldn't keep the house or they didn't have insurance or they didn't want to stay. They didn't want to raise their house, which would cost a lot of money. So there were issues like that. So, in 16, you know, we, we dreamed of having, you know, economic development to turn, you know, have our rateables higher, give the taxpayers uh, hopefully a tax break because taxes are not, you know, our taxes are higher than mortgage because their mm-hmm. rateables are higher. But um, and over the years, it's, it's come to fruition. The uh, housing market in Ventnor, the houses sell right now, double plus the assessed value. The assessment was done in 2017. They are on the market for for probably a week, if that, and they're sold. And most of the people that are buying them are second homeowners. Uh, So right now, I would say two thirds of the people that live in Ventnor or own homes in Ventnor Hmm. are are second homeowners. But we still have 
that um, that one third that holds down uh, the city to still have the community. You know, I always say that Vetner has become even more of a seashore town, and we're different than Margate and uh, other areas, and you could say Atlantic City because we have a very close knit community, and so you have that community feel here as well as a resort. And um, that's why when I was actually interviewed for a paper and the reporter kept um, saying, do you, you know, do you think Ventnor has become a little too bougie? Yeah, that was my next question. I, I read that article and I'm oh curious God. about your, uh, your answer to it. Oh, well, my answer was the way you know me, why I was being interviewed. And it was someone that actually a reporter that lives in Vetner, and she kept say, referring to Vetner as, you think it's too bo- becoming too bougie for like the middle class people or, uh, or the you know the people that live right. here. Right? Have they been priced and, out? Have the middle class been priced out of Vetner? Right, and that was the heading, in so many words. And a lot of people, that if you don't subscribe to that um, paper, you only you can't read the article, so you only read the heading. And she kept using the word bougie, and I said no. Because, you know, personally, I don't like the word bougie. To me, it, it's, it's almost like snooty or stuck up or right. things like that. So I kept saying no. I said, you know, I really would compare that, what Vetner has become to like a Soho because of all the new businesses. I mean, probably close to 50 new businesses in a small town of Vetner have come here the type of businesses. I mean, we have like a, one of my favorite stores is a, a place called Mock Art, M-A-K-T Art. It is all handmade items from local artists. And I could go in there and I get in trouble. And uh, <laughs> I became close. I became friends with the business owner. She actually um, makes a special logo for me. And I give all my nephews, now they have steady girlfriends, my son, you know, family members, I have sweatshirts, hoodies made for them, and that's become a tradition. But ironically, though, this year, I said, you know, I really like the Vetner logo. It, it looks like two fishes. I said, you know what, I really like that. I want to just go with that this year. Don't, don't make me something new. So, but um, I, was, so I was really upset when the article came out. The heading alone, I was upset. I read the article, and... Um, you know, the funny thing is actually that that, that art store uh, wrote is Vetner is a little like L-I-L, bougie. And I was like, I'm going to I'm going to kill you, Brenda. Like, I hate that. And they knew I was I was so upset. So my out the, the way I responded to the article was I text the reporter and I said, basically, Vetner is not bougie. I don't look at it as bougie. I don't even want it to be referred as bougie. And uh, on no uncertain terms, I said, I will never do an interview with you or anyone from your paper again. Good for and you. Then, yeah, because, yeah because, because a lot of people and a lot of the locals thought it was funny. They liked it. They liked it. Oh, we're bougie. We're bougie. You know, I mean, it's what, but yeah, uh, to me, it was it was everything against 
how I felt about my city. I, I get it. Uh, Beth, on that note, I have to uh, I have to run. you got to come back in the future. But I have to uh, ask you, if you're going to pick in uh, the Atlantic City area, and we have uh, listeners all over the country that are going to rely on your recommendation, in the Atlantic City area, could include Ventnor, could include Atlantic City, your absolute favorite restaurant, doesn't matter the type of cuisine, what would it be? The Red Room, excuse me, the Red Room in Ventnor. The Red Room in Ventnor. I'm putting it on my list. Beth, I will see you on New Year's Eve. Eve. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frank. See you then. All right. Thank you. Uh, mayor Beth McCagnano Holtzman, America's mayor. Uh, and uh, Ventnor offers a beautiful boardwalk as well. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on this or anything else we are uh, talking about, we've covered a lot of ground already. And we'll take as many of your calls as we can. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Well, you wake up in the morning. You hear the work bell ring. And I march you to the table. You see the same old thing Ain't no food upon a table There's no fog up in the pan But you better not complain, boy You get in trouble with the man Let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special shine a light on me. How great is this? How great is this song? Let the midnight uh, special. For, in our case, for our show, this sh- song should be called The Other Side of Midnight Special. Uh, Clar- uh, Clearance Clearwater Revival, CCR. Uh, a, if you ever want to know what kind of music we play on this show, uh, join our Facebook group. Uh, just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Or just go on Facebook and search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. We post the um, we post the music there each and every morning. Hey, uh, speaking of the New Year's Eve party, you know, I was really bummed. I got an SMS text message. Now, it's kind of considered something of an honor to get a little bit of a shout out in the New Year's Eve email because thousands of people get it. So even if it's a dig, it's kind of considered, you know, a, like, you know, a nice honor. So one of the people I gave a shout out to was my cousin-in-law, my step-cousin uh, Scott. Great guy, and he's got a house in Brigantine. And we've had dinner with him in Atlantic City from time to time. And I uh, mentioned him in the email. So his sister, who's my actual second cousin, but I consider Scott like my cousin, his sister, Andrea, texted me and said, you know, I'm sure you meant to invite Scott, but he didn't get the email. 
So sure enough, I I think I must have been in his spam, but I forwarded it to him again because he felt like he wasn't invited. So if you are someone that thinks you, if you want the invite, just email email me. I'll everyone's invited to this, right? I mean, you this is a a a party where we have a wide variety of of folks. Uber drivers sitting next to mayors. So if you want to come, just email me frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Now, speaking of parties. Uh, we're having our Christmas party here at uh, the Red Apple Audio Network tonight from, um, you know, in the in the early evening. It's earlier than I normally get here. But I was all set not to go. But a, t- a couple of things are now working against me. One, I get the SMS text message from our program director yesterday, and he copied on the text the president of our whole network. So that's a lot of pressure because if he really wanted to know just, are you coming? He would just text me individually, but he included, you know, our president on this. Additionally, my colleague, Dominic Carter, who's on, you know, the hour before me, he said he was going, he said he got the same phone call and he said he's going. So that puts a lot of pressure on, on me to go. I don't want to look like I'm not a, a team player. Um, and, uh, you know, sure enough, you know, Sid Rosenberg doesn't care. He said he's still not able to go. He got the same call the rest of us did. But now I do feel some pressure to come. What I did see, I usually, I'm, I usually get here between 10 and 11. And tomorrow I have to come in at 10 to record some stuff. And they, um, the party goes until 9. So I could, in theory, get here just instead of getting here at 5, Get here at 8, maybe, and I'll catch the last hour of the party. And this way, I'm still a team player. I'm still participating in the party. But I'm not, you know, screwing up our whole child care situation because my wife works till 5. So that means I have to look after our son until until 5. So I could look after him till 5, take a quick shower, change, and then come in here and uh, still make some of the party. So that's what I'm leaning towards doing because um, – I felt I felt like they were really doing a little bit of arm twisting. Um, are you going? Uh, are you going, Matt? I may come a little bit. See, earlier. did you get the same call that I did? I same? did not. You did. But I thought, well, it's like you say, it's going till nine. See, that's the thing. It's I could a come a little bit. I could come thing. a little bit earlier. Right. No yeah. big deal. So that's what I think I'm going to do. I'll tell you what I did come across, uh, and this was really interesting. You know, the soda that they discontinued, which is one of my favorites. I'm not a big soda person, but there's a couple of different sodas that I that I like. One is Schweppes Bitter Lemon, which you very rarely find. One is Fresca, which was all over Mexico. And the other is Tab. And I am very active in the movement to bring back Tab. And I'm in this Facebook group called Bring Tab Soda Back to All Store Shelves. Hashtag Bring Back Tab. And a person includes a photograph of tab syrup. This is what, and I think this is a bar owner or a restaurant owner. This is what the person says. They still make the tab syrup. Our Coke salesperson was in the other day and her order form has tab syrup listed as available. So you can't buy tab, but if you have a restaurant and you sell fountain soda, you can sell tab. I asked her why, if it's available, aren't more restaurants ordering it for the fountain dispensers? She said because it never sells well as a mixer or on its own. Plus, a box of syrup is $90 now. And if you don't sell a lot of it, you'll end up throwing the expired syrup away. So let me tell you, 
If you're a restaurant and you have fountain soda or a bar that has fountain soda, please get this tab syrup and I will come to your restaurant or bar and I'll bring a whole crowd of people there just to drink tab. People are hungry for this or thirsty for this tab. And the fact that there's still a way to get it and more and more stores aren't taking advantage of it is really disappointing. All right. Those of you that are holding, Steve, Annette, John, everybody else will get to you. But uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, the holiday season, is a time of giving. So we're going to discuss in a minute how you can give. And what I want you to think about is your favorite charity. And I'm going to invite you to call in and make a pitch as to why people should give to it. Whatever it is. 800-848-9222. Because, in the words of the great Bob Graham, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. All right. um, You know, the thing with cliches is most of them happen to be true. And there's an old cliche that says um, it is better to give than to receive. And I don't know about you, but especially this time of year, I always take uh, whatever I can muster and try and give to uh, some charities that I really like. And you may find, as you're doing your year-end finances, that as a gift for someone, you'd like to make a charitable contribution. You may also find that you have a couple extra bucks because maybe your newspaper delivery person is refusing to accept the tip that you have earmarked for her. If that's the case, some of you might be looking to make a donation. Also, by the way, uh, some of you order from Amazon Smile. Amazon Smile is a way to um, have your purchases, Amazon contributes to the charity of your choice. And uh, my wife sent me an email that uh, Amazon Smile has made a charitable donation to the charity that she selected. In her case, it's the it's Brooklyn Animal Action, Inc., as a result of uh, qualifying purchases. So... Um, the uh, All you have to do when you order is go to smile.amazon.com instead of just regular amazon.com, and then you can pick your charity. So I thought it might be fun to give you a list of a couple of the charities that I like to give to and invite you to share with people who might be looking to give something this holiday season 
what charities you enjoy giving to and why. 800-848-9222. So I made a list of just 10 off the top of my head. The first one is not going to surprise you because I spent a lot of time talking about them on the radio and throughout the course of the year. And that is the Stephen Siller uh, Tunnel to Towers Foundation. After listening when we were doing the Radiothon the other day, listening to the daughter of a police officer who was assassinated and listen to her explain how she has to care for her two young siblings. And she had to do that at 20. And the law in New York State is that she wouldn't have access to her mother's pension or any survivor benefits that a spouse would get. And she still has to provide for her siblings. And she doesn't know where she'd be without the Siller Foundation. I said, uh, I don't care what my financial position in life is. I am going to be a donor to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation for Life. Uh, So that's number one, Uh, Tunnel to Towers Foundation, the work that they do for veterans, the work that they do for uh, the children and spouses of fallen police officers, the houses they build, the work that they – in terms of smart homes, the work that they do in terms of getting folks a mortgage-free home. So that's number one on my list, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. The other thing is whatever you talk about in society, whether you're talking about crime, whether you're talking about drugs – whether you're talking about uh, youth going down a wayward path, so much of that is because youth is looking for, children are looking for a place to go, a place to belong. And sometimes there are negative groups, gangs, drugs, and so forth, that fill that void. And that's why uh, another group that I really admire is the Police Athletic League. They, They do some great work in terms of providing alternatives in terms of youth. I, uh, I'm always I'm very active in the National Psoriasis Foundation. I'm going to be honored in April. There is a, uh, a dinner in April. If people want to go to that, they can. But that's a group that I give a lot of money to throughout the course of the year. And then one that um, doesn't, that even I don't think Curtis mentions that often, but he should, is the Guardian Angels. The Guardian Angels is a volunteer organization and they're doing some of the most important work in the whole country right now in terms of fighting against crime. And you heard uh, Mayor uh, Beth Holtzman. There is a real problem with crime in this country, in every city. And uh, I think the Guardian Angels does some incredible work in uh, fighting crime. And so you, if you ever want to donate to them, you can do so at um, guardianangels.org. Another one, and this people may think this is not as worthy as some of the other groups, but it is a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, and I think the work they're doing is phenomenal. It's a group called the Free and Equal Foundation. If there's one thing that I'm passionate about, it's ballot access and it's opening up our political process. And I view this not as a political issue but as an issue that is crucial to our ongoing functioning as a democracy. There is not a democracy in the world that treats independents, insurgents, and third-party candidates the way the United States does. The political bigotry, and that is the right word, that goes on in our country to alternative points of view and people that choose to participate in the political system as something other than Democrats and Republicans is... To me, astounding. 
And the fact that we have not yet had a civil rights movement in this country to stand up for independence is a, a black eye on our country, as far as I'm concerned. And Free and Equal is a group that fights against that. And uh, you can learn more about them at freeandequal.org. I'm going to list these so you don't have to write these all down on my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Needed at least one cultural institution on there, so I'm including the Garibaldi Meucci Museum. A lot of you may remember Giuseppe Garibaldi, the Italian revolutionary. Well, he used to live here in New York. And uh, his roommate, when he lived here, was Antonio Meucci, who invented the telephone before Alexander Graham Bell did. And their house, the house where they lived, is now a museum. And so one of the things that I like to do as gifts for people is buy them a brick at that museum. There's a walkway, and you can make a donation and buy people a brick. I think it's a great gift because it encourages people to visit the museum. So uh, I think that especially if someone's of Italian descent, it's kind of an Italian cultural center as well. Um, Another one, because we've seen what's happened with autism in our country and in our area, is the Grace Foundation. The Grace Foundation is a wonderful group that does so much to uh, help children with autism. And uh, I think they could use a lot of help, and they are just uh, the bee's knees, as far as I'm concerned. Then uh, this is a group that uh, I know Sid Rosenberg spends a lot of uh, time and probably money raising money for, and that is the Theodore Atlas Foundation. Teddy Atlas is a boxing promoter, and he named this foundation for his father, Dr. Theodore Atlas. And he was a boxing trainer, really, more than a promoter. And it is a 501c3 community service organization that provides financial, legal, and emotional support to people that are having a tough time. And I have seen so many people over the years that have been helped by the Theodore Atlas Foundation. I think it's great. Another one, and this is selfish on my part in case I ever end up having a tough time, Another group, and uh, Renee, who used to work here doing uh, public relations, she does a lot of volunteer work for this group, is the Broadcasters Foundation. Our former general manager, Tim McCarthy, is now the head of the Broadcasters Foundation. And you ask yourself, what happens if you're working as a broadcaster and you get into a car accident or you get sick and you're not able to earn a living anymore? The Broadcasters Foundation looks after your family. And provides for your family. But they can only do that if there's money to do it. So that's always high on my list. And similar to Free and Equal, another organization that I really admire and uh, try and give some money to is the Center for Voting and uh, Democracy. Uh, Fair Vote, basically. They're at fairvote.org. It is a great group that fights for electoral reform, which, as I've said countless times, until we reform our electoral process, we're not going to get anything done. We're not going to get anything done on crime. We're not going to get anything done on the border. We're not going to get anything done on fiscal policy. We're not going to get anything done on inflation. We're not going to get anything done on any aspect in a meaningful way. You might make improvements on the margins. But until we improve our electoral system itself, then all of that is academic. Academic. 800-848-9222. Tell me a charity or a foundation, 501c3s only, that people can get a nice tax deduction for if they itemize. I imagine most of you are like me and you don't itemize. 
and that does some good work and that could use a little recognition. This is a time of year for giving. And uh, I'd love to know what charities you're giving to and why and uh, why people should uh, do it. I also I've listed this on my Facebook page. And if you want to add in the comments section a charity that you like to support, you can go there as well. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Kevin in New Jersey. Hello, Kevin. Yeah, Frank. Um, I agree about the PAL. When I was a kid, I went there as well. And I, I, uh, I learned a lot from them guys. And it was a, uh, a great, great organization. But uh, even bigger than that, when when I was younger, me and my brothers and sisters were in an orphanage, and um, the Shriners actually came there. And we, they, at Christmas time and at Easter, we got, you know, we had a big celebration. We all got gifts. We got baskets on Easter, and we wouldn't have had that otherwise if it wasn't for the Shriners. And I never forgot that. So, the Shriners and their hospital is always a great charity. I, I, I give them money every year. Uh, that's great. So uh, the Shriners, if people don't know about the Shriners, tell me a little bit more about what they do. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an organization like, like uh, almost like the Masons. So it's a, it's a, a men's uh, uh, group or whatever. It's a club or whatever. And they started the Shriners Hospital and they help uh, kids that are born with, you know, deformities and such and, you know, sick kids. And they, they go around and they, they do all these charitable events where they do stuff like that, like what they did with us when we were kids, they go to orphanages and they give the kids presents and all they have, you know, they have the little cars that you see in the parades. They do all types of um, charitable events all year round. And also the hospital, mainly the hospital. Most That's of the great. money goes to the hospital. That's great. Th- thanks, Kevin. I appreciate that. Uh, appreciate you sharing. Tell me a charity you're giving money to this holiday season. And uh, as people are looking for, Causes to give to that you want them to consider. 800-848-9222. Could be anything. Could be something that uh, helps a disease. Could be something that helps veterans. Could be anything. You know, uh, don't think because it doesn't get talked about enough. And that's why I wanted to make sure to mention both the Guardian Angels and the National Psoriasis Foundation. Don't think because it doesn't get talked about enough that it's not doing good work that deserves recognition. This is your opportunity if there's a cause you care about to give it recognition. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. All right, Big Frank. And anytime you have a guest on and puts the audience to sleep, if you want me, I'll jump right in there. And before I get to the meat and potatoes on the charities, I'd just like everybody to know that Vanessa Del Rio went to Scale in high school in the Bronx. She was a porn star. And I'm sure none of the guys cut any classes if they had her in the class. <laughs> now, and also Angie True Connection, the great song, More, yeah, more, 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 More. She sure. was a porn star, too. All right, with the charities, all right, first, the shrine is they don't charge the people, the kids. There are many hospitals in the country like that. And um, one of my, not my favorites, but I think it's a good one, too. It's the same thing with St. Jude's, with the little kids, cancer. They fly them in, they house them, the families, they don't charge them. It's a very good charity. But a lot of people don't know. Like, they think when I call talk radio, it's go Buchanan, go, and I'm the best guy when it comes to sports. But I'm on all the stations, and I used to always call, used to call the medical shows, and I used to tell them, listen, you guys have clinical trials out there. Why don't we demand that when the clinical trial's over and the research is there, make it available to all the major medical centers and all the hospitals throughout the country and the world? And they finally started doing that. I was one of the biggest advocates for that. And I, I can tell you that some of these things, I, I would say like Sloan Kettering, the Mayo Clinic, uh, John Hopkins, 
make contributions to those hospitals, even if it's 10 bucks or 100 bucks, because their research is so phenomenal. You wouldn't believe what they've done recently and what they're on ready to break through. And there's a lot of bad diseases out there that are going to be cured eventually. But the thing now, the key word with them is they want to manage these diseases. Instead of it being a death sentence, the people can manage a very horrible situation. Contribute to those uh, research centers. They are really doing unbelievable research. Well, great great call, Steve. I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank you. 800-848-9222. What's a charity that you want to give a little recognition to which, and uh, encourage people to donate to as they are looking for a way to give this holiday season? 800-848-9222. Anthony on Staten Island. Hello, Anthony. Hey, what's going on? How are you? Great. Thanks. Hey, uh, the, the charity I, uh, I always donate is one on Staten Island. Uh, they also contribute to uh, Frank Silla. Uh, Troops Relief Fund. They're a veterans organization, and uh, they support, like, uh, petting programs for vets that are home and disabled uh, throughout Staten Island, throughout the tri-borough. And uh, they run a auto program uh, for auto donations. The, uh, the program's been around for, like, 25 years. The director is great. They do a lot of charity work. And I always contribute to them with my autos. Great. The, the Troop Relief Fund. That's correct. You could, you could find them if anybody's interested. Is uh, TroopsReliefFund.org. Uh, they've been, like I said, it, it's a phenomenal group. They've, they, they contribute a lot to veterans. And the petting program for the pets is, is just, it, it's life-changing. And I've worked with them and, and delivered pets to uh to veterans' homes where, you know, where they're, re- they're being rehabilitated. It's a great organization. I think that's wonderful. Uh, thank you uh, for sharing that, Anthony. I uh, appreciate that. Uh, makes uh, makes perfect sense. Thank you. 800-848-9222. If uh, you have a charity that you want to make people aware of, like, you know, i got to be honest, I follow things pretty closely. I didn't know about that Troops Relief Fund. Relief fund. Sounds like they're doing great work. So, all right, 800-848-9222. I know Annette on Long Island has been holding a while. Hello, Annette. Good evening, Frank. Morning. Uh, it is a long while, but it's worth it. Thank you. Uh, earlier in this show, you mentioned a topic uh, that I think is related to a movie, and you didn't give the name of the movie. Uh, I'm going to get into that, and I think your viewers would really, really find this a wonderful movie. It won the Academy Award for the Best Foreign Film and many awards internationally. It's called, uh, uh, it's a French word. My French is 50 years uh, rusty. J-O-Y-E-U-S Noel. It means Merry Christmas in French. And it's uh, related to your conversation about uh, during wartime, um, most many times there's a ceasefire, and uh, t- to stop the fighting, so the soldier. The, uh, that, the, that's great. I'm looking men. at this now. I was you not. Know? I've never heard of this film, um, but uh, it you looks. Never heard it. it no. sounded like it. It sounds. Uh, it it's, is. It, it sounds, is wonderful. Well, that's great. I'm going to check it out. It's called uh, Joyeux Noel. 
It's about seven. Yeah, it's about seventeen years old, and it's about what I was describing—the Christmas truce of uh, December of nineteen fourteen—and uh, looks great. I'm uh, I'm going to check this out, and it did win or was nominated, I should say, for best foreign language film at the uh, at the Academy Awards that year. It is it fiction. Won. It won it. Uh, no, it was nominated. It, it didn't win, but uh, it but didn't? no, but um, but uh, that's okay. Uh, it's still you know just it's an honor just being nominated, as they say. Uh, it is a, it is a factional. It, it is a fictional depiction yeah, of based, what occurred. Based on a true. Yeah, yeah. So true, people should based. know that uh, going in that it's not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily to be taken as gospel but it looks like a great film i'm going to put it in my queue from uh from netflix right they were all uh a four servicemen from four different countries scotland uh uh scotland i think russia um uh, france right and, and probably germany country, uh, who, who uh germany probably a Germany who, yeah. get, who uh, meet and decide to celebrate together in the Fox Yeah, Bowl. that looks great. And uh, it, that's... It is really wonderful, you uh, have to say. I it. will. I'm going to check this out. I hope. It, uh, it may be hard to get this time of the year, but after the holidays. It's available in the library. If they don't have it, oh. they get it for you. Oh, that's great. I'm okay. going to check it out. I don't, I don't, thanks, Annette. Merry Christmas. I don't know that I'll get to see it before Christmas because I'm pretty booked every single day until uh, January 1st. You know, that's the thing is sometimes uh, people invite you to things and um, they think they're being nice. They think they're doing you a favor. And all I view it as, you know, almost all the time is a burden, right? It's now one more thing that I have to try to go to. So, uh, I mean, I don't know if everybody feels that way, but maybe it's just because I have a lot going on in my life right now. But, uh, and then people are shocked. You don't want to go to whatever bougie place to use the... Beth Holtzman uh, adjective. You know, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to care. I don't care. I want to just live my life and honor the commitments that I have. All right. Talking about charities that you give to that you'd like other people who are looking to make a contribution this time of year to consider. Simple as that. Uh, Andrea is in New Jersey. Hello, Andrea. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing great. I I want to tell everybody about this charity. It's located in New York. And they have an actual facility there. They train guide dogs for people who are blind, but they don't just give them the dog. They bring the person who is blind up to the facility where they live for three to four to five months, and they bond with the dog. Mm. That they sounds cost great. 40, mm, cost forty to fifty thousand dollars. There are four graduation ceremonies of dogs each year. Now, the the real point is. When the dog reaches a point where it can no longer work, um, but it's still a viable dog, there are lists of lists of names of people who will take this retired blind dog in. Then they will bring that blind person back up for three to four to five months to give them another dog so they can bond. It is an amazing facility. I have given them thousands over the years. They will be in my will. They spend the money wisely, and that's it. I've always been afraid of losing my eyesight, which is probably never going to happen. But to me, that's the that's the most horrible sense to lose. Oh uh, well, I, I could definitely see that. So it's called guiding eyes for the blind. Guiding eyes for the blind. Thank you, Andrea. That sounds wonderful. That's exactly this is exactly what I'm hoping to do: is have people make their own lists so that they can pick some causes that sound good to them and give ten bucks a month to, or five bucks a month, whatever the case may be. Jay is in the Poconos. Hello, Jay. Good morning, Frank. Morning. So, 
the charity we give to is my uh, nephew's wife is a veterinarian in Atlanta, Georgia, and she goes around to homeless people and does veterinarian care for their pets and supplies them with food. And, I mean, I really feel it's such a nice thing to do. It's brave to go into these places. And some of these homeless people, their pet is their only friend. And she's taking care of them. Well, that's wonderful. All, so, uh, all on donation. Tell me, the, tell me the name of the group again. Uh, her name is Dr. Kristen Schmidt. It's in Atlanta, Georgia. I believe she's on Facebook. I don't have a website. Okay, but it it's not. A, she's not uh, affiliated with a specific group or something like that. Uh, it's a, it's a nonprofit, so I don't right. have well, any more every, information. Everything that we're mentioning is a nonprofit. Um, right. but, but so, all right, thank you, Christian Schmidt. There you have it. I can't speak to that, but uh, I'm trying to limit it to 501c3s only. Roger in Massachusetts, hello. Yeah, I just want, maybe you could remind everybody, the name escapes me, but I followed through. Remember you interviewed the woman from uh, this, uh, whose daughter was, was lost at Sandy Hook with the pet, with the uh, sanctuary? Yeah, the yeah. The pet animal sanctuary? Yeah. Uh, that was compelling. I followed through on that, right? As soon as I got home, um, I don't know if... If you still happen to remember a- the absolutely. name, absolutely. I mean, I'm glad. Uh, thank you for reminding me about that because I can't believe that I um, that I neglected to include that on my initial list. But yes, that's the Catherine Violet Hubbard Animal Sanctuary, and uh, yeah. not only not only was it founded for all the right reasons, but they're doing just wonderful work. Uh, Catherine Violet Hubbard. Animal Sanctuary. They can go to people if they're interested. CVHFoundation.org. I'm so glad that you uh, reminded me about that, Roger. Thank you. I also I also do a Alley Cat Rescue. They're out of Virginia, but Alley Cat Rescue. But 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 that, the other one that was the main one. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we're going to um, give you an opportunity to try and win $1,000 in uh, just about 60 seconds. We have a couple people holding. John in Queens is holding. Um, and uh, we'll try and get to as many of you as we can. But we're then going to talk with Brian Kilmeade. So if you want to try and win $1,000, be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, and you'll be able to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. Now, I did not have these questions solely concocted by AI because, interestingly enough, when I gave the AI the instruction to come up with 10 Christmas or holiday-themed questions of escalating difficulty, it came up with questions that some of them had no answer. So I had to double-check them. So some of these are AI-related, but most of them are just out of my brain. Uh, Seventh caller will play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Tip tap toe, happy Hanukkah around you go. My little latke on your toes. Happy Hanukkah and around and around you go. Clap your hands, happy Hanukkah, clap, clap hands. My little scootler on your toes. Happy Hanukkah and around and around you go. Jump real high, happy Hanukkah, jump, jump high. My little fruitcake on your toes. Happy Hanukkah and around and around you go. 
Run, run fast, happy honey run, run, run. My little sugar pie on your toes, happy honey and around and around you go. Woody Guthrie, Guthrie, Hanukkah Dance. Um, It is Hanukkah. We've got a menorah in our house. So uh, happy Hanukkah or Hanukkah to everybody that is celebrating. Uh, It is a festive time of year. And uh, hopefully you are being appropriately festive. Well, it's a lot easier to celebrate if you have an extra $1,000 to help buy some gifts or make some charitable contributions or just pay some bills, which is what we're hoping to do with the other side of midnight presents it's the thousand dollar minute answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win one thousand dollars here's your host frank morano and then we will talk with uh, brian kilmeade in just a minute about some of the news of the day let me say hello to bob in freehold hello bob Hey, how are you? I'm great, Bob. Bob, you familiar with this contest? Yeah, yeah, man. Great. All right, so we'll we'll get started if you're ready. Good. All right. What is the traditional color of Santa Claus's suit? Red. Hanukkah is also known as the festival of what? Lights. What is the name of the candelabra which holds candles during Hanukkah? Uh um Blank. Start um, starts with an M. M. Menorah. What U.S. state has the largest population? California. What is the name of the Ukrainian president who addressed Congress last night? Zelensky. In the movie It's a Wonderful Life, what's the name of the guardian angel who helps George Bailey see the value of his life? Uh, no idea. Uh, Starts with a C. Tinkerbell? I don't know. <laughs> uh, sorry, Bob. No, it's yeah, Clarence. Know. Clarence is the guardian angel. It's going to be on quite a bit. Uh, have you seen It's a Wonderful Life? I have. I have. I just drew a blank on that. Yeah, it's a, great, it's a great picture. Every time a bell rings, uh, an yeah. yeah, angel gets his wings. Bob, uh, we're going to yeah. give you a Christmas gift. We're going to give you a, uh, a prize of some sort. Hang on. Give Kenneth your information. Have a Merry Christmas. By the way, for those of you still looking for some last-minute Christmas gifts, in all sincerity, a terrific Christmas gift for someone on your list that likes to read or likes history is uh, The President and the Freedom Fighter. And it's a wonderful story about how uh, Abraham Lincoln came to work with and came to befriend Frederick Douglass, someone who had been born in slavery and was entirely self-taught and became one of the most photographed, not one of the most photographed former slave in history and uh, somebody who educated a lot of people himself and inspired a lot of others. And its author is Brian Kilmeade. He's written a number of books, most of them New York Times bestseller. He's also the co-host of Fox and Friends and a nationally syndicated radio talk show host who you can hear every morning on WABC from 10 a.m. to noon. Brian, how are you? Frank, what's going on? You're fired up. You're ready to go. Uh, absolutely. You know it. You know it. What is Christmas like in the Kilmeade household? I imagine it's rare for you to ever get a day off. You're working six, seven days a week normally. When you're finally forced to take a day off for Christmas, how does that go? Uh, you know, Christmas Eve has emerged. When I was younger, Christmas Day was big. Uh, now Christmas Eve is the big day. 
and uh, that's what everyone comes over and can, uh, you know, they uh, they zero in on our house. And with my weird situation is I have three in college right now because my son went back to law school, so he's been away. My other two daughters are upstate at college, so they they come back. So um, the dynamic changed so radically; it's it's almost if um, it, it's almost as if uh, though I'm on vacation in, in a different uh, different household. So it comes great, and then this year I'm going to try to get over, uh, get get to Florida. But I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if you've been seeing the weather. What's going on? We're about to get slammed. I hey, well, I did see that. It's winter for uh, it's winter for a reason, and uh, it's looking like. Are you a snowblower guy? Or are you a shovel yourself kind of a guy? Well, the weird thing is, is that I'm always on the air. Like when they'll, they'll say, "Brian, right. it's a snowstorm. You got to stay." So my wife's been shoveling for 25 years. And because she's so good at it, I don't want to take it out of her hand. So, you know, you, you don't want to say, hey, you're so good. I'm going to get someone else to do it because her feeling of accomplishment, she doesn't put it into words, but I could see it. Uh, so I get her a snow thrower. So it's when it goes into the snow and it throws it. So. Uh, well, that's going to be something. Wishing everybody the best of luck uh, with the uh, with the weather for the next few days. I, you know, I had read somewhere, and I don't know if this is just one of these things that you read that turns out not to be true, but I have read that your son, Brian, actually has his name spelled differently than you do. Is that accurate? And why well, would you do that to a poor kid? That's so funny. You mean your sources and your team? That's right. We, 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 we spend the life. whole week preparing and research right. for this segment, Brian. And this is the only thing that merged controversial. That's right. That's right. I believe <laughs> me, we had to look. We had to look. Right. Okay. So, uh, yes. And there's a couple of reasons why. Because I've always wanted my name spelled with a Y. Uh, because as a child... If your name is Brian and you know who you are listening right now, they spell your name Brain and you get mocked all the time. Brain kill me. And I've had teachers do this. I'm like, please, do you not know the difference? And then I realized he came out, uh, he was 19 inches long. That was my soccer number. So I said, that in my mind, I said, hey, why don't we name him Brian? But let's do it with a Y so no one thinks Junior. And 19 inches, that's, you know, that's my soccer number. So that's got to be a signal. It's really dumb logic. And my wife should have stopped me and said, we don't want two Bryans in the same house. And the spelling differently is not really going to pronounce it differently. So, Well, that's what I wondered about. I mean, what, what do you really what gain by spelling differently? But that's a very sound explanation. Nobody's calling him brain in law school. Hey, uh, let me ask you what this uh, Democratic Congressional Committee did with respect to uh, President Trump's tax returns. Uh, President Trump has uh, declined, unlike most modern presidents, to release his taxes. So this House committee, even though he's no longer in office, they said, all right, we're going to do it. Do you think that this sets up sort of a, a dangerous precedent of whatever congressional party, whatever congressional uh, committee is in the majority, they're just going to release all sorts of personal information about high-profile political adversaries? Frank, you are so on top of this. That is so correct. I'm listening to this, and we've already gone through this. They had to get his tax returns. They had to get it. And Rachel Maddow got the one page, and it revealed almost nothing. He's got no debt, and there's different investments, and he gives out money. Yeah, he gave charity. uh, He gave land as charity because he couldn't develop it. How do you know what he can develop or not? He gave a ton of land to charity for them to develop it on their own for a dollar. Number two, just wait, Joe Biden. You know, you had all these S corporations. You, you're supposed to be making what two hundred thousand dollars a year for for fifty years. Why do you have all these mansions? Why are you involved in all these international deals tangentially? Where is the money? Now Republicans say we'd like to see them, and when the there's resistance, goes excuse me. 
there's precedent. And every courtroom said, well, there's precedent. A, and now a former president, current president, can, can get their tax returns taken. And you know what? Everybody can. And this is going to be hell mm. for both sides. But first and foremost, this next two years for Joe Biden, because their relentless fever to destroy Donald Trump for some reason, gets Democrats the tax returns of the former president for absolutely no reason. And to me, you're going to rue that day, uh, the current president. But I also just don't know who would care. If you're a Trump supporter, I can't imagine you're going to see this information and say, oh, that's it. He didn't pay taxes for two years. I'm not voting for him. And if you're a Trump detractor, uh, I don't imagine you're going to see anything that causes you to become even more of a detractor. Who? I don't understand the value to anyone, quite frankly. Frank, the way they do it, and I don't, uh, you know, and... Uh, John Costamatidis, who owns WABC, could do uh, can do the say this in a sleep. But for people who get into real estate, a lot of times their goal is to pay zero taxes by investing in other buildings, taking incentives from cities and states in order to revitalize certain areas. And then if you have a loss one year, you try to counter it over when Trump Tower gets finished and you have something else that's a loss on the west side, you counter that. You put it together. It's extremely complicated. And when it's all said and done, accountants look at it. Accountants sign off on it. They hand in the taxes. And that's the way it's done at a high level. These things go on and on and on. We can't even relate to the amount of paperwork involved in this. So for you to ask for his taxes, I get it. Trump should have given them up and just said right away, here, here it is. It's complicated. In the 80s, I did this. In the right. 90s, I did this. Right. In 2000, agreed. I did agreed. This. Politically. You know, he bankrupt. Yeah. He got bankrupt once or twice. To me, he should have embraced that. I had it all, lost it all, got it all back. I would love that. I mean, Dave Ramsey, one of the most successful talk show hosts, talks about how he lost everything. And now he gives financial advice because he's got everything and learned through it. So uh, I just don't I, – I, this is what they do in real estate. That's how they buy. That's how real estate agents do it. Hey, Hey, Mr. Mr. President uh, or Donald Trump, uh, you've had a lot of success here. I think we've got a building that needs some help. We're going to give you a tax incentive to start revitalizing. As they build it, it's a tax loss. When it's finished, it becomes a tax asset. And then you go maybe invest somewhere else. That's really how this whole thing churns. And for, for Adam Schiff, he would never understand that. For others who just take their salary, have fixed salary, fixed income, you assume, they're never going to understand that. But, but to me, whether you understand it or not, why is it the role of a congressional committee to out that information to the public? W- what is the value well, either they say? for legislation? They, say that they want to see if he was profiting off relationships while he's in the Oval Office. Well, ironically, the vice president was flying to Mexico, having emergency meetings with uh, uh, business partners of Hunter Biden. Uh, while he was vice president of the United States. So they want to see if the reason why Saudi Arabia liked him so much is because uh, he was uh, able to cut some type of deal. The reason why the Mexican president of socialists loved him so much, there's got to be some Trump investment. And, you know, I remember Don Jr. would say, we never should have agreed to not do any international business deals because that was my thing. We Mm -hmm. had all these hotels rolling and golf courses uh, set to go, and we had to stop them. He was so frustrated. So do you think that he would be doing things like this during now you need to know to stop him, I guess, Frank, if you press me to running again. 
they want to find some way to stop him from running again. We, um, you know, uh, around Christmas, you take a look at people that are t- having a tough time this time of year. And uh, I want to thank you because on your Twitter, and I've just retweeted on my Twitter at Frank Morano, uh, you uh, shared a petition, which I wouldn't have known about, quite frankly, about this Afghan special forces soldier who's now in prison. He crossed the border and uh, he is now uh, he's apparently the guy that they put in jail. And uh, there's a petition to try and get him freed he seems like he is um uh, grant afghan um it seems like he's really getting a raw deal arrested at uh, texas border asylum so i've uh, retweeted that as well and uh, that's a crazy story just get him out i mean you should be embarrassed enough mr president about the way you left afghanistan so he could not get out could not get a special visa so he did what everybody else is doing he went through the southern border because his brother's here already sure he thought he would they would find his credentials instead they put him in a jumpsuit that's the guy you arrest? Right. It's we crazy. We have a 98, uh, 98 people on the terror watch list, and this guy is not one of them. The terror watch list, they're detained. This guy's in a federal prison. Uh, what's your prediction for what ends up happening with Title 42 and the implications for the stadiums full of people that are expected to come in here on a daily basis once, that is, uh, once that's revoked? Frank, uh, they're not enforcing it much anyway. I mean, these numbers are stunning. You have uh, uh, Congresswoman Escobar, the Democrat, saying the president's got to come down there. This is unacceptable. You have other people saying you've got to make me a Republican. And then you, uh, you have obviously Henry Cuellar. But until we get prominent Democrats, and now you have Kristen Sinema who says it's terrible, uh, but she's now an independent. Until you get them, nothing's going to change. I have to say, and I'm the, one of the last people to say it because I don't like – I think it's on purpose – no one can be this incompetent. No one can be this incompetent. I think it's fought out on purpose uh, to allow our country to be overwhelmed by illegal immigrants. Do you know we're getting 15 buses in New York City? 15 buses. He wants billions of dollars, does the mayor. Eric Adams, right. Yeah, uh, but we're getting 15 buses. Philadelphia got five. Uh, now they, uh, the Illinois is bracing for more. El Paso's got to convert the convention center, convert two schools. Uh, two vacant schools uh, right now as shelters. So they're being overwhelmed. And, you know, in this omnibus, the focus, I focused yesterday on it. You know what it says? Money for facilities, money for NGOs. You are prohibited to essentially build the wall or any barrier. Prohibited. So $1.7 trillion and whatever you do, don't block people. How dare you put that in? What does that tell you when Republicans are going to sign off on this? Thank goodness Mike Lee pushed back and delayed it at least a day. But they're telling you, Frank, you will not stop them. And to me, that is absolutely anti-American. A lot of folks are saying that uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to have a tough time getting the 218 votes necessary for speaker. There's still these conservative holdouts. Some people are looking at Steve Scalise as an alternative. Other people are saying maybe there's even a possibility of a, a bipartisan speaker, Democrats and Republicans coming together. You think McCarthy hangs on? I hope so. He absolutely deserves it. He's a deal maker. He's not an ideologue. He'll go in there, consolidate. Uh, I, I don't know what these knuckleheads are doing. This Matt Gates who sits on his hands as Zelensky was speaking the, last night. What are they doing? Uh, I don't understand. I understand if you have ambitions, you want to be speaker. But didn't you lose? Rick Scott lost his quest to be majority leader, minority leader, to Mitch McConnell again. So he doesn't, you know, okay. 
All right, I'm in line. Andy Biggs goes, I like to do it. He got he didn't get any votes. Okay. Get in line. Get in line. What is your problem? Do you realize how much work Republicans have to do in a short amount of time? They can't get their chairmanship done. They can't get their agenda finished because these same holdouts are sitting there. They want a provision that would allow them to, at a snap of a finger, remove the speaker. Okay, you have a vote of no confidence. Here we are in March. We don't like what you're doing, Ken McCarthy. You're out. Of course he's not going to sign off on that. Besides that, they go, yep, not my problem. McCarthy was in trouble the minute he had a slim majority because he knew there was some anti-Kevin McCarthy people, just like there's a huge contingent of anti-Brian Kilmeade people. (laughs) What I got to do is have more people that are in my camp. I can't convert them. They already hate me. So so I can't. So that's what Kevin McCarthy's stuck and the Republican Party stuck. Yeah, I, I think the um, the number of anti Brian Kilmeade people are, uh, are 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 small and diminishing in number. Brian, uh, thank you as always. Good luck with the weather, and uh, I'll look, uh, have a great Christmas. And uh, I guess I'll talk to you in the uh, new year. Absolutely, Frank. I, I love doing these Thursdays, and uh, your audience is bigger than you know. I, I cannot tell you how many people say, "Brian, I heard you on the radio." Hey, you you heard my show? No, I heard you with Frank Morano. I go, thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate that, Brian. Thank you. Go get him, man. Uh, listen to Brian Kilmeade on his own nationally syndicated radio show and uh, see him on Fox and Friends. And if you honestly, if you are looking for a great book, this is a good one. The President and the Freedom Fighter, all about the relationship between Abraham Lincoln and uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. You can start queuing up now. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight, courtesy of Stevie G and the Flying Reindeer. This is available on iTunes. I was going to go to the fellow. There's a fellow who's been hanging on for like 45 minutes or an hour. I was going to go to him before we got to 15 seconds of fame. I think it was John in Queens. Uh, John in Queens, um, if you want to call back before all these lines fill up for 15 seconds of fame, we'll give you a couple more seconds other than 15 seconds uh, because I know you've been holding a while. Uh, so feel free to call back, 800-848-9222. For everybody else, there are three open lines, and uh, you can um, be heard on any subject you like for 15 seconds at 800-848-9222. We have uh, just posted in our Facebook group the songs that we have played this morning. I've posted on my personal Facebook page the um, charities that I mentioned earlier, and uh, you can feel free to comment and add your charities as well. By the way... 
I always do my own search of whose birthday it is, right? So we could try and play music from this artist or that artist. Sometimes I miss them. And we have a great guy here, producer. Uh, he doesn't work on our show, but he works, uh, you know, on the network. And a great guy, Rich Radabali. I've known him for years. He's been working. Uh, he started working here in the late 80s, early 90s. Wonderful guy. His wife worked here for a time. He's a great guy and a smart guy. And one, one of the people that really knows radio best here. But he's kind enough to send out this daily sort of rundown of whose birthday it is on any given day and what happened on this date in history. And I find it really helpful. One, forgetting about finding it helpful, I find it interesting. But yesterday on that list, it said it was Megan Trainor's birthday. So I mentioned it, even though I hadn't seen it myself. Well, lo and behold, today. I'm looking at whose birthdays it is. Today is Megan Trainor's birthday. Not yesterday. Today. So I apologize because I mentioned that it was um, it was Megan Trainor's birthday yesterday, even though I had not seen that independently. Uh, but also a lot of athletes today, uh, Steve Carlton and um, Baseball Hall of Famer Steve Garvey. So uh, and, and rapper DeBaby, who I saw in the airport and who delayed the process of us getting through security. It's his birthday as well. All right, I want to give John and Queens another opportunity to call back 800-848-9222. For the rest of you, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in uh, just a moment, 800-848-9222. And, uh, again, you could stay in touch with me if you didn't get a chance to be heard uh, by emailing me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Tomorrow, we are going to include some elements of our normal uh, Friday show, but we are going to do our normal Christmas-themed show. A couple of things that we've always done on Christmas are, one, I always play the rendition of John Gambling's reading of The Night Before Christmas. Usually I've had John on, but John was just on, so I'm not going to you know bother him to stay up this late again. Two, um, we always do the WMCA Christmas Carol with Bob Grant as Ebenezer Scrooge and Mark Simone as the ghost of Christmas present and all sorts of great radio voices from the past and some from the present doing this radio adaptation. People have come to really look forward to it. So I tell you the story of how that um, tape came into my possession and then we'll play that. And tomorrow is Festivus. So we are going to do the airing of grievances and the uh, feats of strength. Although if the weather is as bad as Brian was describing, I'm wondering if maybe... I'll be able to do the show from home. I'm guessing not, but uh, we'll see. All right. Uh, If you want to be heard for 15 seconds, go ahead and call right now. 800-848-9222 as we do. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Ephraim. Yes, uh, Frank, I'm very angry because uh, there's a lot of past presidents that are not enforcing immigration laws. Because they're deceased, I guess, you know. And uh, Eric Adams wants us to adopt migrants in in our, in our neighborhoods. Jimmy! Leo! Frank, even though my grammar is real bad, I love your show. Listen, uh, Mer- happy holidays to Rachel. Carmine and to you. Thank you, Leo. I love you, too. Merry Christmas. Terry! Oh, more, more, more. I love it, Andrea True. Neil. Hey, tomorrow's my birthday. I'll be 70. 
And on your way home tonight, would you mind dropping me off a pepperoni pizza? <laughs> uh, Troy. Get some shares at AMC stock or some hard cost money stock. Talk to HYMC. You can talk now. Watch the specific share. You just found two hundred ago, so can't go but nowhere but us. But, uh, Peter. Yes, one of your major character flaws is how dare you have a caller on for 45 minutes when you ramble on. Hey, you know, you, you, you're you a nice guy, but you got to work on those weaknesses. There's an insecurity there that it, it's not pleasant. Thank you. Ray. I think Linda Lovelace is from the Bronx, too. My favorite charities, United Way and Disabled American Vets. Go Curtis, go Curtis. John. All right, thank you, John. Now they're multiplying the citizens, the anti-citizens, we'll call them, are multiplying. All right, hey, uh, this was a lot of fun. We'll see you tomorrow for our Festivus show. Um, those of you who want to hear me for another few minutes, be on WABC in New York at six twenty-five this morning. I hope you'll tune in. Uh, for those of you listening on WCBM, they have a great morning show as well. Sean Casey does a great job there. Still waiting for my invite on that show, but that's okay. Uh, Frank Morano, good day.